Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Planning Commission hearing for Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. To enable public participation, SFGovTV is broadcasting and streaming this hearing live and we will receive public comment for each item on today's agenda. Each speaker will be allowed up to three minutes and when you have 30 seconds remaining, you will hear a chime Indicating your time is almost up. When your allotted time is reached, I will announce that your time is up and take the next person queued to speak. We will take public comment from persons in City Hall first and then open up the remote access line. For those persons participating via WebEx, please raise your hand when public comment is called for the item you are interested in speaking to. For those persons calling in to submit their testimony, you need to call area code 415-655-0001. Enter access code 2482-952-8974, then pound. You need to enter the password for today, which is 0223, then press pound, uh, where you should be able to listen and um, listen to this hearing live. Uh, please wait for the item you're interested in speaking to and for public comment to be announced. To comment, you must enter star three to raise your hand. Once you've raised your hand, you will hear a prompt uh, that will state you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait to speak until the host calls on you, at which time you need to wait your turn. And when you hear the prompt, you are being asked to unmute yourself. To unmute, press star six. You need to press star six. We're hoping by next week, this star six aspect will be gone. Um, when you hear that you are unmuted, that is your indication to begin speaking. Best practices are to call from a quiet location and please mute the volume on your television or computer. <clears throat> For those attending in person, please line up on the screen side of the room. Please speak clearly and slowly and if you care to, state your name for the record. Finally, I'll ask that we all silence any mobile devices that may sound off during these proceedings. At this time, I will take roll. Commission President Tanner. Here. Commissioner Vice President Moore. Here. Commissioner Braun. Here. Commissioner Diamond. Here. Commissioner Imperial. Here. Commissioner Koppel. Here. And Commissioner Ruiz. Here. Thank you, Commissioners. First on your agenda is consideration of items proposed for continuance. Item one, case number 2022-007251-CUA 300 Page Street. A conditional use authorization is proposed for continuance to March 16th, 2023. Item two, case number 2020 one DRP at 330 Rutledge Street. A discretionary review is proposed for continuance to March 23rd, 2023. And further commissioners under your regular calendar. Item 12 for case number 2019-023037ENV. For the waterfront plan certification of the final environmental impact report, we have received another request for continuance from the port to continue to March 9th. 2023. I have no other items proposed to be continued. And so we should take public comment, members of the public. This is your opportunity to address the commission on the continuance calendar. Wish to do so, please come forward. Again, if you're calling in, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Norma Garcia. I'm here on the 330 Rutledge matter. Uh, we're prepared to go forward. However, we will defer to your choice on uh, whether or not this should be continued. Thank you. We are the uh, DR requesters.
Last call for public comment on the continuance calendar. Seeing none, public comment is closed and the continuance calendar is now before you, Commissioners. <clears throat> Commissioner Imperial. Move to continue item one, two, and 12 as proposed. Second. Thank you, Commissioners, on that motion then to continue items as proposed. Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz. Aye. Commissioner Diamond. Aye. Commissioner Imperial. Aye. Commissioner Koppel. Aye. Commissioner Moore. Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner. Aye. So moved, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously seven to zero and will place this on your consent calendar. All matters listed here under constituted consent calendar are considered to be routine by the Planning Commission and may be acted upon by a single roll call vote of the commission. There will be no separate discussion of these items unless a member of the commission, the public, or staff so requests, in which event the matter shall be removed from the consent calendar and considered as a separate item at this or a future hearing. Item three, case number 2022-010161, CUA for 601 Townsend Street, a conditional use authorization. Item four, case number 2022-011188, CUA, for 1700 California Street, a conditional use authorization, and item five, case number 2022-005559 CUA for 1700 Pine Street, a conditional use authorization. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to request that any of these consent calendar items be removed from the consent calendar in order for them to be heard um, today. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three. Okay, we do have a remote caller. Or not. Again, you need to press star three to unmute yourself. Or excuse me, star six. Star six to unmute yourself. The caller able to unmute themselves? Um, oh, their hand went down, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess they lowered their hand. Maybe they were interested in speaking to another item. Okay. Well, I'm uh, calling about 1700 Pine Street project to be pulled off consent of um, the calendar as I didn't get advance notice of this project and I live in the neighborhood. Okay, that's uh, fine. with my district that's fine. Which, supervisor. Is this 17, okay. you're requesting 1700 Pine? California. Correct. 1700 Pine, very good. Item five will be pulled off of consent and when we come to that matter and through the chair at the end, end. of the, yeah. today's calendar. So it would be heard at the end of today's agenda. Um, can, we hear it? can we hear it after item 14? Before DR. But sure. So it will be heard uh, for the member of the public requesting it be pulled off of consent right before the discretionary review calendar after item 14. Okay. So any other member of the public who would like to request that the other two items on consent be pulled off? Seeing none, public comment on the consent calendar is closed. Commissioners and items three and four are still before you under your consent calendar. Thank you. Commissioner Koppel? Uh, move to approve items three and four. 
Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to approve items three and four on your consent calendar. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously seven to zero and places us under commission matters for item six, the land acknowledgement. Today, Commissioner Imperial is going to read the land acknowledgement for us. Thank you, President Tanner. Um, the Planning Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all the peoples who reside in their tr traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as first peoples. Thank you. Indeed. Item 7, consideration of adoption draft minutes for February 9th, 2023. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the Commission on the minutes from February 9th, 2023. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, your minutes are now before you. Commissioner Imperial. Move to adopt the minutes. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to adopt the minutes. Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz. Aye. Commissioner Diamond. Aye. Commissioner Imperial. Aye. Commissioner Koppel. Aye. Commissioner Moore. Aye. And Commission President Tanner. Aye. So move, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously seven to zero, placing us on item eight, Commission comments and questions. <clears throat> there like are we got no nothing today. comments and questions from members <laughs> of the Commission. If you would indulge me just for one moment, Commissioners. Um, as of March 1st, uh, the mayor's office and the state and everybody's lifting all the COVID restrictions and Brown Act uh, relaxations. And so to remind you that as of March 1st, you will need to appear in person uh, unless you have submitted um, a request to DHR for a disability reasonable accommodation. Uh, if you have not received that authorization from the Department of Human Resources, then you will need to appear in person and remote uh, participation in these meetings will no longer be available to you for any reason, unfortunately, even though we have the technology. Furthermore, um, you have the right uh, as a policy body to elect to um, no longer receive public comment remotely, uh, except for a disability request uh, for reasonable accommodation. So um, you all may direct me to no longer provide that access through WebEx or uh, phone in for public comment if you so choose. Um, if I don't hear anything from you, I'll assume that we'll remain with the status quo uh, given that people have become quite accustomed to it. I do believe the mayor's office in coordination with the city administrator's office and the board of supervisors will be issuing direction to all policy bodies and commissions such as ours uh, for consistency. But uh, until we hear that, 
I suggest we just sort of move along as we have been. Yeah, certainly. And I do see some hands up, and I'll just say on the comment of the remote uh, public access, I think, I think it's been very successful, and I don't think we've had, I mean, obviously sometimes the technology has challenged us, but for the most part, it's been very effective, and sometimes we can't hear what people are saying, some people mumble, TV's on the background, but not really any problems um, from it, and if it enables people to you know, give their comments, I, I hope that we could continue that practice. And again, thank you and your staff for facilitating that, and also SFGov and other technology who help support the effort. I know it was not easy to get going, but it's running very smoothly, from, at least from our perspective, but I literally have to push like none of the buttons and make any of it go. So thank you again for making it happen. And I want to recognize Commissioner Moore and Commissioner Imperial. Uh, I would fully support what uh, President Tanner just said. Uh, indeed, this is a public forum and I think we have been very successful in inviting public comment and really making ourselves available to be transparent and accessible. That was not actually the reason why I'm pressing my button. I wanted to remind uh, staff uh, and re repeat my request to have a discussion on how we are extending the use of parking lots. I would like to see some policy, including what are the time frames we are allotting. I hear two years, five years, three years. In some cases, I see us doing it repeatedly uh, over quite a few years, and I think we need to look at land resources in a slightly different way. Uh, that said, I would like uh, a follow-up discussion with staff, some background, and uh, encourage the rest of my commissioners to support that as an idea. Certainly supportive of that. Thanks, Commissioner Moore. Commissioner Imperial? Um, yeah, I would, um, in terms of the remote access, yes, I would also support that. Um, I believe in, there are some discussions in other committees, like um, I believe in the rules committee where people with disabilities and seniors um, having, you know, coming to the city hall is, um, can be challenging. So I think having that option of, of remote access for public hearing should be still open. And I do support what Commissioner, um, Vice President Commissioner Moore in terms of the parking spaces, in terms of, again, as we're trying to remind ourselves of housing element and um, what, you know, again, in terms of investing on or looking into the into the um, sites that we have um, and how to identify this and looking into as well in the extension of those, why, um, how can we, the planning and also perhaps in other city agencies can also see these parking spaces in a more productive that align our goals with the housing element. Thank you, Commissioner Imperial. I think that's all the commissioners. Did you have anything else, Commissioner Moore? No, I didn't take my name off, thank you. No worries. Very good, commissioners. That will place us under department matters for item nine, director's announcements. Hi, good afternoon, commissioners. Liz Wadi, director of current planning. Um, no announcements today other than Director Hillis is on a well-deserved vacation this week, so I'm acting director for today's hearing. Thanks. Great, thank you. Item 10, review of past events at the Board of Supervisors, Board of Appeals, and the Historic Preservation Commission. As far as I understand, there are no reports for any of these bodies, so we can move on to general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public. 
that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Commission except agenda items. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the Commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. Each member of the public may address the Commission for up to three minutes. Good afternoon, Georgia Shudish. Uh, it's actually kind of an anniversary today for me and for you because on February 20th, 2014, was the first time I ever came here to talk about alterations that were really demolitions. So I'll just indulge myself to talk about that for a second. You can watch it if you want to on SFGov TV. It's six hours and 11 minutes. It was in the old days when you used to have general public comment at the beginning and the end of the calendar, so which was kind of nice. Um, at that time, I mentioned a letter that I had written to Mr. Metcalf, who was in the head of SPUR, about affordability, and I felt that uh, in my statement, what I said that day, and which I've continued to stay pretty much since then, is that with these uh, alterations creating big fancy homes, uh, the affordability was the issue. And little did I know back in 2014 that I was going to see not only two, three, four million dollar increases, but five, six, seven million dollar increases in some of these properties, and that Noe Valley would be declared the epicenter of de facto demolition. Um, so I want to uh, read uh, something that was said at the uh, 2009, March 26, 2009 hearing uh, when uh, the commission approved the CID. This is it here, the very first one from 2009. And what was said was, we intend to return in a couple of months after a report on the first year of operation of Section 317, because that's what the CID did. It implemented Section 317, which had been passed the year before. And, continuing, may make recommendations for adjustment of some of the thresholds that the code empowers you, meaning the commission, to make, particularly about the thresholds for alteration projects that are tantamount to demolition. Thank you, and I'm available to answer your questions. Well, that was Mr. Nikita said that, not me. So I want to hand this in. Here's the... Uh, front of his uh, working folder, and here's the statement I've given to you before, but I'll give it to them. And I do think that the calc should have adjusted, if not once, at least twice, and maybe even thrice. Thank you very much. Any other member of the public wishing to address the commission under general public comment? Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three. If you're on WebEx, you need to raise your hand. Seeing no additional requests to speak, Commissioner's public comment, general public comment is closed. And we can move on to your regular calendar for items 11A and B, case numbers, excuse me, uh, for the office project status update informational presentation in case number 2022-010182-CWP for the downtown recovery informational presentation. Uh, good afternoon, President Tanner and Commissioners. I'm Anne Marie Rogers, Director of Citywide Policy for the Planning Department. Uh, we've got two items under uh, number 11. We'll take item B first, and that will really set the stage with an overview of the city's downtown recovery uh, project. Then staff will provide a status update on the approved office projects. Um, and I'd like to just start off by, on behalf of the director, um, acknowledging the immense importance of the downtown and its engine to the city of San Francisco. Um, not only is the engine itself important, but like all engines, it's important to fine tune and maintain it. As our report notes, the downtown-based businesses generated nearly half of the city's sales tax revenue 
in 95% of our business tax. And still, the downtown is more than that. It's a reflection of the city's vitality and ingenuity. The pandemic has certainly taken a toll. San Francisco's downtown is not alone in its post-COVID slump. And we're not alone in thinking about a better future. Planners and city staff have been researching and proactively reaching out and listening to downtown stakeholders. And we've been talking with experts across the country. You may remember at the start of this pandemic, um, not much was clear. Uh, it was very unclear what the public health emergency would be, and it was also really unclear what trends would emerge um, from it um, once the emergency itself had subsided. So from how long COVID itself would last to question about its effects, we wondered were these effects temporary and perhaps would dissipate and we would return to our pre-pandemic normal. Um, we asked if we were simply seeing an acceleration of trends that were already in place pre-pandemic. And we also just wondered uh, if we were seeing totally new things that were going to be permanent changes to the city. Uh, time has provided more clarity, certainly, and certainly there's still much that we are learning. The economy is reacting and evolving. And one thing that we've learned at this point in time is that there is no silver bullet. There is no one or two or 10 actions that are needed. Uh, there are dozens or perhaps even hundreds of actions that the city is taking now and will continue to take. You may have seen the New York Times article uh, this morning about the emotional baggage that can cloud our thinking when it comes to COVID. The before days, as they've been called, and the after days um, sound like a clear demarc dem demarcation, but they are actually, it's a very foggy experience and we hope to pierce that fog today. We're gonna to share an overview of the city's efforts to respond and advance a new vision for the downtown. We'll start with Kate Sofis, the OEWD's executive director, and Jacob Bentliff, the manager of economic recovery in their presentation about the roadmap. Uh, then Lily Langlois and planning staff will describe the department's efforts. The item will conclude with a presentation from our zoning administrator on those status of the office projects you've approved. Um, so we've got a full team here and we'll introduce them before it's over, but we really uh, look forward to sharing this with you and the public and hearing your ideas for action. So now, Director Sofis. All right, good afternoon. Kate Sofis, Executive Director of the Office of Economic and Workforce Development. Um, do you want to do something to get these going? So I wanted to just give us a few framing um, slides to uh, before we dive into the detail and maybe start with one of the most obvious questions, uh, but something we think quite a bit about, which is why focusing on downtown so deeply as, as you are about to see. I wanna start by saying when we are talking about downtown, for some of us that means the financial district um, or a very specific subset of what we might see as our economic core, our greater downtown. But what I want us all to think about today, every time we say downtown, think of it as the greater downtown, the areas of our inner core that really comprise the heart and soul of where people have historically worked, where our major offices are, our major employers are, and where our destination retail, many of our arts organizations, and some of our newer residential um, communities are located. So uh, financial district for sure, 
also south of Market, Union Square into our mid-market. The Market Street spine is so important in our public transit nodes along that spine um, and Civic Center. So again, the question, why downtown? Why now? I think as many of us have sort of moved through the pandemic and we all saw with the shutdowns, um, you know, the desolation of people coming into work and people coming into the center of the city for everything else, for dining, for shows, for recreation. And what we really have observed is a fundamental shift that is not going back to how people work and how people think about coming into work, uh, specifically coming into work in our economic core, but this is a, a trend reflected across the country, uh, across the world. Uh, in San Francisco, part of the reason that we have seen such a quick move to more remote work is partly because of our own industries being so technology-centric that we had a real ease among many of our sectors to quickly pivot to remote work and a continued ease um, to allow people to continue to work remotely. Those trends have really settled in now to a pattern um, that is changing how people think about making a decision to come into downtown. But historically, just before the pandemic, downtown uh, represented more than 80% of our GDP. Um, it is where most San Franciscans actually were coming into work. So there's a really important connection between the workplace and our neighborhoods. It also represents um, an incredibly large part of our tax base, um, and specifically the tax base that feeds our general fund. And beyond just the borders of our city, it is the city that is connected through transportation, through supply chains, and through economic ties to the rest of the region. So we play a real regional role as well as one that's local. So COVID had so many impacts, and, and this is partly what our roadmap that we're going to go through with you today is designed to begin to push back against and to really lay a future pathway forward. We have been, of major U.S. cities, the slowest to recover in terms of our office use. And, and that is a really important thing to bear in mind because people were historically coming into the downtown first to work and then to do all the other wonderful things that also have an impact, whether it's dining at a small restaurant or whether it's uh, going to take advantage of uh, arts entertainment or shopping. And so all of those ancillary industries have suffered as our um, use of our downtown has been far lower than it had been pre-pandemic. We also had the dual impact of both our office uh, workers coming in less frequently and at the same time, due to travel restrictions, we had an immediate hit during the shutdown to our travel and tourism, which is actually one of our other largest sectors. The good news is that is beginning to come back, come back more quickly than um, our office work, but it still has had quite a significant impact on our tourism and our visitor part of the economy and on our uh, business travel, which has also been a historically very important part of what powers our, our downtown. All of this has eroded the city's tax base, and I think we have several examples here, property tax being one of the most important elements that uh, feeds our general fund. And all of this has landed in uh, a very real understanding in this moment in time that we are facing a budget shortfall at the city of around $700 million in this next fiscal year. And that is largely due to these impacts on our tax base. 
So, now the good news. I think we, and I'm gonna say we as a city, as government and as community in the business community, in our neighborhoods, I think we are really at a moment in time when we recognize the opportunity to not look back, but now to look forward. Um, and what we're gonna look at today is a roadmap that is a combination of work that has been happening um, under the direction of Mayor Breed across our departments, including planning, OEWD, DPW, Rec Park, all of our departments working together, and very importantly, working across community uh, with businesses, with residents, with um, owners of bars and restaurants and arts organizations to put together a plan that will really focus on these five key visionary pillars building back even more economically diverse and creating jobs as we refill our economic core with new kinds of economic activities. Really doubling down, continuing to double down on clean and safe pedestrian and working and living environments on our streets. Creating much more of an all-hour dynamic destination and that will be a real shift from where we were before where downtown was more something that was much more a daytime, you know, come into work and, and go home at the end of the day. Really um, taking advantage of our um, center of our transportation system and continuing to push forward, even in the face of the budget shortfalls that our public transit agencies are facing, to push forward to build a world-class transportation infrastructure and doing all of this with equity and inclusion in mind. So the last thing I will say is what you're going to see right now is um, a roadmap. It is not a plan. It is not a thing that we are done with today. We're really embarking on a journey. It will take several years. And so what we endeavor to do is to build out a website that we can continue to iterate on and bring new ideas into and have a place that we can communicate both across the city and to community about progress against um, these different milestones and towards this vision. I'm also happy to say it includes a dashboard that we've worked on with the city controller's office so that we have a way to look at economic indicators as we're going forward. Uh, but this is the beginning of the journey, and we're very excited uh, to have this body and the planning department and other departments with us. And so with that, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Jacob Blintiff, who's going to talk a bit more about uh, high level what is in the plan uh, in our roadmap as of today. Jacob? Thanks, Kate. Uh, Jacob Bentliff with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development. Um, good to be with you all, commissioners, as always. And as Kate mentioned, I'm going to go through a little bit more of what is in the roadmap that the mayor rolled out in her state of the city. Uh, it is organized around nine strategies and around 50 initiatives. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 50 of them, but I could, um, <laughs> but I won't. So the first, <laughs> the first strategy is, as Kate mentioned, really foundational to everything else that we're going to discuss today, which is making sure that people uh, perceive and experience downtown as a clean and safe environment. Uh, we know that we um, certainly have work to do there. This strategy really includes a lot of initiatives that are largely underway and coordinating a lot of functions. Yes, it does include uh, an enhanced public safety presence, as the mayor mentioned, and making sure that we have adequate police staffing, but it also includes a panoply of non-police responses, including our various ambassador programs throughout the city and um, 
I think around 10 different street response and outreach teams that are organized by um, the Department of Emergency Management and Homelessness uh, and Supportive Housing. And one initiative I'll just flag under that is actually, um, that will be new this year, is something that the Department of Emergency Management is rolling out a public awareness campaign so people actually understand how to take advantage of all those resources. You know, I could rattle off 10 different street response team names. Uh, people need to know uh, what call to make when they see something in the street. So that's one piece, as well as building on and making sure all those different teams have the resources they need. The next strategy is attracting and retaining a diverse range of industries and employers. And you know, this strategy is actually kind of about doing some of the basic economic development work that most cities around the country do all the time. In San Francisco, we've had it a little easy. We haven't had to do a lot of this work uh, in recent memory because um, we've, we've been able to attract a lot of new industries um, without having to go out and seek them. So one piece of this is a study that OEWD has commissioned that's a competitive industries assessment to identify what are some of the most promising and high growth uh, potential industries that we could attract to San Francisco, which will then feed into a business attraction campaign that OEWD with our business development team will lead to proactively go out and try to attract some of these new sectors and major players in those industries to come to San Francisco. In addition, this definitely relates to our tax code. Uh, Mayor Breed introduced last week a package of tax incentives um, and potential reforms. And so just on the tax relief, you know, it's one part actually uh, delaying some scheduled increases in the gross receipts tax, which is our primary business tax. It's also creating a new incentive for office-based industries that locate, uh, new companies that are office-based that locate in San Francisco to get uh, a tax break up to a million dollars per, um, per company uh, up through 2028. So that's one piece of it. It's also uh, the mayor announced at the same time asking the controller and the treasurer's office to do a more thorough scan of our whole business tax structure and make sure that it is competitive, make sure it's not disadvantaging in-person work in any way, and make sure that it's as broad-based and resilient as possible. The third strategy that we have is to facilitate uh, new uses and flexibility in buildings. This is really the area that's primarily the planning department and your team as well as DBI uh, involved in this. And so um, Lily's going to talk uh, about quite a bit of this, so I won't steal too much of her thunder. I'll just mention that, of course, it's making sure that our zoning uh, is flexible, um, not just for office to housing conversions. Yes, there's work going on uh, in that regard, which Lily will talk about, but also just making sure that our baseline zoning for any project allows as many uses as possible uh, and reduces the barriers that are often there for people to get creative and change things up in our, in our existing buildings or in a new building. Uh, one piece on here is also uh, that we're working with the planning department and your team to uh, take a look at some of the projects that are already entitled uh, and just see if there's anything that needs to be done to make it easier for them to make changes for an entitled project that hasn't gotten to construction. Maybe they got entitled with one idea before the pandemic and you know things have certainly changed. So just what could we do that would be helpful um, to make those kinds of um, reconfigurations, for example, uh, a little bit easier as they go through the planning process? I think uh, the next strategy is about making it easier to start and grow businesses in downtown. Uh, I think a lot of times when we talk about downtown, we think about big corporations and offices, but really the area that has suffered the most is our small businesses that are downtown. This is a whole ecosystem of businesses that grew up around this foot traffic. 
uh, and they have just really struggled uh, and suffered through the pandemic. And so this is really focusing on small and large businesses, but uh, doing everything we can, building on the work of Prop H and the Small Business Recovery Act, which uh, your planning staff has been um, great, and also working with OAWD to make sure we are getting storefront permits for businesses out in 30 days when that is guaranteed. Uh, it's also, um, you know, looking at, it's also going on with our first year free program that's already in existence, which is actually waiving business fees for the first year of a new business. Uh, there's a new initiative in here that I think uh, uh, us, us planners would be pretty uh, interested in, which is the Vacant to Vibrant program that OEWD is going to be launching next month. This is actually going to be, uh, we're going to be working with a consultant to match businesses or entrepreneurs with a vacant uh, storefront vacant space and uh, make it easier for them to get into that space. So one part is the matching, but then also bringing technical assistance and support to that business to do a pop-up uh, in that ground floor space. And this is, of course, uh, a really easy way for a new business or idea to get started. Could be a small entrepreneur, could be a major company that wants to test out a new idea, new, a new retail experience, for example, but they don't want to commit to a lease, uh, long-term lease and all the overhead that comes with that. And um, of course, it also would really help us deal with our ground floor vacancy issue, which is you know in the 30% on bid market, for example. So you know again, that just feeds into the vibrancy, people having an impression of downtown as a vibrant and active place while also helping businesses start and grow. This strategy is also gonna include a lot of ongoing work between OEWD, our Office of Small Business, DBI, Permit Center, planning staff, to just make sure that we're getting business permits out as quickly and easily as we possibly can. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the businesses involved in our economic recovery, and the next strategy is really looking at the other half of that equation, which is our workforce. This includes uh, a number of initiatives that our workforce division at OEWD will be working on to make sure that our workforce training programs and support programs are actually tailored to the needs that businesses have right now as everything has been shifting around and stepping up our outreach to some of the hardest to reach uh, workers, people that have dropped out of the workforce, uh, people that don't have the skills that they need in the current environment. It's also talking about housing because uh, you know if people want to work here, they, they need a place for them and their families to live. So uh, also included here is the implementation of the housing element and the mayor's housing for all plan. And uh, just congratulations again to everyone here at planning and planning commission for getting the housing element approved. Uh, this is about making sure that we do uh, everything we need to do to build those 80,000 units. Next, we also have a strategy uh, to make sure that downtown, uh, as Director Sofis was mentioning, you know, it's not just a place where, yeah, okay, I came into work today, so maybe I'll go do something. It's actually the other way around now. People are, when they have the choice to work remotely or not, are coming into the office because they have tickets to a show that night, because they're meeting up with friends to do something. And so this strategy is all about making sure that downtown stands on its own as a destination unto itself for nightlife, arts, and entertainment not just a place to go to work where you can also find those things. Um, we have so many great cultural and arts institutions and venues that are already in downtown and throughout San Francisco. This is trying to uh, bring that together and make sure that uh, we're really promoting that. One specific thing that will be launched here is an arts, culture, and entertainment zone. This is something the Entertainment Commission is working on right now to figure out where exactly that should be located in the downtown. And then OAWD will be developing a package of incentives to support arts, entertainment, nightlife businesses in that area. Could be fee waivers, could be zoning changes, could be permitting issues, uh, but really trying to um, you know, create kind of a hot spot for that and have it be a reason to come downtown. 
The next two initiatives, are our strategies rather, are really about leveraging some of our existing infrastructure uh, to make downtown inviting and accessible. The first of those is our amazing network of public spaces uh, that we have throughout downtown. Uh, one item on here I want to note is, uh, of course, implementing the permanent shared spaces program, which the planning department staff has done an incredible job of from the beginning of the pandemic, and now we're just on the verge of that program being permanent. Uh, it's also about bringing in new design elements, could be as simple as some lighting uh, or, or some, uh, some public art in some of our existing spaces. This is also about creating new anchors or points of interest. Uh, and so, for example, one thing that OEWD is building out is uh, landing at Ladesdorf, which is um, you know to try to take a couple of alleyways at Commercial and Ladesdorf just down from the Transamerica Pyramid, really turn that into a pedestrian uh, kind of plaza environment, working with the CBD there and the, and the neighboring businesses. The other key piece of infrastructure, as Director Sophus mentioned, is our infra uh, transportation network, which uh, really centers downtown and makes it um, makes downtown really the place that's the easiest to get to throughout the entire region. We need to build on that and continue investing in it. So this strategy includes all of MTA's ongoing work to make sure that they are restoring service, bringing service back to downtown, speeding up service with Muni Ford projects. Also, big picture things, we have deadlines to meet this year about getting high-speed rail into the Salesforce Transit Center, talk about infrastructure uh, that we've invested in. It also, also um, I think, really important. I hear a lot about people talking about biking downtown. This is also um, the MTA is going to be looking at how to build out the downtown bike network north of market. Um, they did a lot of incredible work south of market during COVID, and now it's time to make sure it's easy to get into the financial district as well on a bike. And finally, uh, the last strategy that we have, uh, which we're calling Tell Our Story, this is really about leveraging all this work to promote a positive message about San Francisco and reinviting people um, from people who don't live near downtown, people who live in the Bay Area, we want them to come downtown, or people around the country and around the world to remind them um, that we, you know, at the end of the day, have some incredible, unique assets to offer um, natural beauty, our culture, our history, reminding people that that's here. And also, uh, so that's one thing, which is a visitor attraction campaign that we're working with SF Travel to do. Uh, also, we just launched in partnership with Advanced SF, a heart, of, a heart of SF social media campaign, which is gonna be about trying to really promote all the um, things that are not just going to the office that are happening downtown so people can really see and feel and be invited to come and check out what is happening because it's gonna be changing every day. So uh, that strategy is really about tying our uh, story together. Thank you for your time and attention, and I'm going to turn it over to Lily to talk more about what um, your team is working on for economic recovery. Thank you. Hi. Thank you, Director Sofis and Jacob. Um, so I'll zoom in a little bit more to talk about the planning department's thinking and sort of the things that we've been focused on.
Sorry about that. So our starting point for this thinking really is the downtown plan, which was adopted in uh, 1985, and it developed, was developed really in response to the office growth outside of the financial district. Downtown was spilling into the adjacent neighborhoods, and at the time, the plan was widely praised as an ambitious effort to manage growth and to address the impacts to housing, transportation, and the loss of historic buildings. So the downtown plan helped to center employment growth in the C3 district, the area that's shown in red. And despite its relatively small size in relation to the rest of the city, it contains the majority of jobs citywide. The downtown plan supported housing in the adjacent neighborhoods, and it set ambitious goals for transportation and created new requirements for um, citywide benefits related to arts and childcare and open space and affordable housing. The downtown plan also called on a number of neighborhood plans around downtown to both preserve existing neighborhoods and to add more housing and jobs. The majority of housing that's been built since 1985 has been within a mile of the C3 district. The graphic here just illustrates kind of the thinking and the planning that has taken place since the 1970s to shape the land use mix that we see today. And this history is important as we consider what is the right land use mix to ensure that downtown is more resilient and inclusive for the next 50 years. Corey will touch more on this in a minute, but just at a high level, the city has allocated about 30 million square feet of office. Almost, almost two-thirds of this is located in the C3 district. However, most of the office that has been built in the last 20 years has been south of market, largely in Soma. In the last uh, three years, we've seen a shift uh, towards small office projects because the large cap has been more constrained with the adoption of Central Soma and Prop E, and Corey will touch more on that in a minute. So given this background and history, I think COVID, as all of us have mentioned, has really forced upon us this opportunity to reimagine downtown. And when we think about COVID impacts, which Anne-Marie has mentioned, we've kind of organized them into three buckets. So the first is the way that COVID really um, heightened and accelerated pre-pandemic trends. This includes changes to brick and mortar retail with competition from e-commerce and broader changes to the retail economy as well as high rents and rising vacancies downtown relative to the rest of the city. Second, COVID caused significant changes to the economy that the hope and what we're seeing is that these trends will revert back to pre-pandemic trends. So while tourism, conferences, indoor dining, uh, cultural and arts activities nearly ceased in March of 2020, we're now seeing an upward trend in many of these activities. The third bucket is the most unknown. So these are new trends um, that we don't quite know the answer to yet. So most notable is the frequency and intensity of physical office space. Flexible work has changed demand for office, which we've discussed, resulting in high vacancy rates and lower tax revenue and has, and has had dramatic effects sort of on all aspects of city life, eyes on the street, retail, and businesses that support office, as well as our commute patterns. Many companies are still grappling with their remote work policy and also thinking about the design of the physical office. And if we look at office attendance in San Francisco, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were significant differences among cities. San Francisco is now ahead of San Jose and Philadelphia, about on par with DC and slightly below New York. Uh, Austin, Texas continues to be the outlier with a much higher rate of office attendance. 
So planning for downtown has been underway for many, many years. Multiple plans and policies are in place to direct office downtown and promote housing in the adjacent neighborhoods. And while zoning controls are pretty flexible and allow for housing today, as well as other types of commercial uses like labs, the bustle of downtown is not returning as quickly as we would like. So what is the right mix of uses and what incentives does the city need to put in place to support these changes? To answer these questions, our work is organized into four buckets. The first is the future of office. And Jacob mentioned there's a study underway that OEWD is leading with KPMG. And the goal of this study is really for us to identify the industries where San Francisco should focus its energy for, for diversification or has an advantage to help grow these jobs back to the city, both filling existing office space and adapting to the evolving business types. As part of this work, we will explore code, regulatory, and other economic development incentives to attract these jobs and sectors back to downtown. The second is expanding housing downtown. So we're working in partnership with Spur and Gensler to understand what buildings might be suitable for conversion and what incentives or code changes might be needed to facilitate conversion to ensure that these projects are feasible. We're also looking at the supporting amenities and facilities that might be needed to ensure that downtown can be a viable and inclusive neighborhood. The findings and recommendations for this study is expected in March. And concurrently, we're working with both DBI and FIRE to identify the regulatory barriers to residential conversion, things like open space, rear yard, exposure, and developing legislation to address these barriers to help facilitate conversion. The third bucket is around public life and retail. We've noted already that sort of the changing nature of retail and the impacts on street life and economic activity. There's been a lot of great work that's um, happened around public realm activation with the downtown partnership, as well as the current program that Jacob mentioned around activation and partnering um, ground floor businesses with spaces. So we support and are following both of those programs. Looking at ground floor uses specifically, um, while the C3 district is relatively flexible, we're taking another look at the zoning and other process improvements to see if there's any regulatory changes that could be made to activate the ground floor to support businesses and eyes on the street. And the last bucket is around Union Square. So Union Square has long played a unique citywide, regional, and international role, very distinct from the rest of downtown as a center for shopping and entertainment and services. In November of last year, the Union Square Alliance um, published their strategic plan, which highlights specific goals and implementing actions that they would like to make. And so we've been working with them to identify planning code changes to maximize flexibility of uses in Union Square and also to ensure that there's a diverse mix of uses um, to create a strong economy. This work is expected to be done by summer. So I've outlined sort of the key themes that the department is working on and thinking about, and the next six months, this is what we're focusing on. So continuing to meet with community-based organizations to hear what, they were do what they're doing, their interests, and their priorities. Continuing to survey what other cities are doing to address recovery. Collaborating on these two important studies, the COVID economic impact analysis, and also the Spur and Gensler conversion work. And once those studies are done, we will sort of develop a, a path for implementation to advance the recommendations. Partnering again with OEWD to explore the arts, culture, and entertainment zone. 
We're currently developing legislation to support downtown recovery by allowing for more flexibility of uses in all C3 districts and changes to the development controls to support office to housing conversion. We're also working with other city departments to advance recommendations for financial incentives. And finally, partnering with ULI and SPUR on a technical assistance panel. This is a service by ULI that brings together national experts from a variety of fields, and this TAP is expected to take place in May. So I know downtown is top of mind for many of us. We read about it daily, and it feels really different when we walk around. To address the challenges that we are experiencing, we've identified both sort of the short-term actions that are needed and the long-term view because many of these trends are still evolving. The planning department has played a key role in helping to advance legislation in the near term using the tools that we have available to address land use flexibility and changes to building development controls to support conversion. We recognize that this is only part of the solution and that there are many other factors at play that impact the economy and it'll take some time for the market to respond. So we will continue to work with other city departments and external partners to better understand priorities and trends. And I just want to acknowledge the interest of this commission on this topic and look forward to hearing from you about your priorities as well as members of the public. So with that, I'll turn it over to Corey to talk briefly about office and then we'll open it up. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Lily and Kate and Jacob, and good afternoon, President Tanner and Commissioners, Corey Teague, the Planning Department. Um, my role is a little smaller here today. If you'll recall, uh, last October, when we were last before you, kind of giving you an update and overview of the uh, office allocation program, um, the Commission requested that we come back at some point and provide more information about those projects that have been allocated office space but are not yet under construction. We do monitor and track projects that have received allocations just to keep track of their general status and when they've started construction, when they've completed construction. Um, so we were able to compile that information and provide that for you here today. Um, the purpose of this was not to come today and kind of get into uh, fine level details about each individual project and their circumstances. It was really just to provide you the uh, overarching information about those projects to begin that conversation. And so, um, as was called out in the memo and tables that were sent to you, we have 22 office projects right now that have been allocated by the Planning Commission and are not yet under construction. Um, there was kind of an even split. There were 11 projects that were allocated out of the small cap and 11 projects that were allocated out of the large cap. Of the small cap projects, that's about 500,000 square feet of office space that's been allocated but is not yet under construction. And from the large cap, it's about 5.5 million square feet of office space that's been allocated but is not yet under construction. Um, there are some nuances here. We have some projects, some of these allocations are part of like long-term development agreements, so it's kind of understood it's gonna take longer for those projects to be built out over time. Uh, we also had a, a couple of projects in Central Soma that are phased. So you have kind of a phase one allocation and a phase two allocation. So they kind of show up in the, in the tracking as two separate allocations, but they're effectively uh, one project. Um, but what that means ultimately is um, in the city right now, we have about 5.9 million square feet of um, projects that have been allocated but are not yet under construction. And then we have several projects that are still technically kind of in some state of construction, but not, not very many. And then I thought it was um, helpful to point out, we also have two fairly large office projects that are technically under construction. They've either demolished the existing buildings and or began construction on the office buildings themselves um, that are kind of 
recognized as being on hold at the moment. That's not a well-defined term. Um, a lot of projects are in different states right now, um, but these felt significant enough just to point out for your information, the first being 51st Street, which is the Oceanwide Project. It's a large project. I will point out one small typo in the memo. It calls out that project at 1.5 million square feet. The table actually represents it correctly at 1.05 million square feet, so just right at a million square feet. Um, and then we also have uh, 88 Bluxham Street, which was the former tennis club uh, site where that demolition has taken place, but they've not started the actual uh, construction of the new building, and that's 775,000 square feet. Um, again, looking at that, that's kind of the, the full list of projects that have been allocated that are um, not yet under construction. Happy to go into any details or any questions you may have about those projects and how we track those, or if you have any other questions about the overall numbers for the program itself. Thank you. Okay, if that concludes staff's presentation, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on these informational presentations. Uh, if you're in the chambers, please come forward and line up on the screen side of the room. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three. If you're on WebEx, you need to raise your hand. You'd press star six to unmute yourself. Uh, hello, commissioners. This is David Wu with Somewhere Filipinas. Uh, as we hear about updates on office projects and the downtown recovery plan, it's important that we also have an understanding of past plans, such as the Central Soma plan. Uh, May of this year, just a little over two months from now, will be five years since the passage of the Central Soma plan, which passed in May. 2018. And as far as I can tell to date, there has been no monitoring uh, plan report produced by the planning department as required by the ordinances passed by the Board of Supervisors that enacted the Central SOMA plan. And as detailed in the Central SOMA plan, a monitoring report uh, was originally scheduled to be released in 2021, followed by updates every five years. And as we are now approaching five years since the passage of the Central Soma Plan, we request that the Planning Department, um, at the urging of the Commission, produce the required Central Soma Plan monitoring report to be released by the five-year mark of May 2023 this year. Uh, when it comes to downtime recovery, any framing, understanding, or plans have to prioritize and be driven by low-income, working-class, residents and in our immigrant residents. Putting aside the gentrification and displacement impacts of the tech boom, overly focusing and obsessing on courting and growing the tech sector has shown to be a huge mistake in San Francisco. This was exacerbated by plans such as the Central Soma Plan that specifically catered to tech. As detailed in the Soma Filipinas CHESS report, we need to prioritize getting working class residents into living wage jobs that can support families. We need to ask how can we rebuild from the pandemic in a way that supports low-income working class and communities of color and not uh, to try to get back to a downtown that was a driver of extreme economic inequality in San Francisco. Thank you. Okay, last call for public comment. Seeing none, public comment is closed. and. Um, this very interesting topic is now before you, Commissioners. 
Glad you're interested, Mr. Secretary. Um, Commissioner Moore, I'll call you first. <laughs> I have two quick questions, not in order of importance, but in order of presentation. First question for Ms. Corey Teague. Um, I would be interested to see attendant numbers of delays in fees uh, based on the projects that are were planned but where we are not receiving any revenue and how the non-receiving of revenue affects other projects and plans that we have been developing concurrent to those numbers. It is particularly interesting that two projects, very large projects totaling more than 1,750,000 square feet are not just under construction. They have basically been stopped and we're reading re different articles of why they may never surface. I'd like to get an understanding about the impact of expected fees and how they are hindering growth and recovery in other areas of the city. Uh, thank you, Commissioner. That's definitely something we can look into and bring back at a future hearing. We don't have the impact fee information for all the projects in terms of the total numbers and where they would be dedicated to go and what those impacts would be. We don't have that information available today, but that's definitely something we can look into and get back to you on. Could you then briefly uh, answer the question, are we deriving any income from these non-projects uh, other than property tax for unbuilt parcels or any fees for delay in construction? So in terms of impact fees, those are assessed at site permit issuance, but they're not collected until the first construction document. And that first construction, construction document is literally the first permit issued to allow construction to begin. It's usually the foundation permit. Um, so for any of these that aren't yet under construction, we've not received any impact fees there. On the flip side, those fees are indexed every year because the idea is that when you do ultimately begin construction, you want the fees to be as close to the construction costs you know, uh, at that time. So it's not a situation where those fees are staying stale for now. They are getting indexed every year. Um, but in any of the projects that are already under construction, they would have already paid their impact fees. Some insights would be helpful sure. for us to better understand the magnitude uh, of the underlying problems. My second set of questions is for um, Ms. Sofis, Ms. Lengua, and um, uh, Mr. Bindliff. Uh, this is a question you may have asked yourself, but I would like you to consider building them in as you move forward. A large part of downtown recovery, from my perspective, is the active engagement and participation of citizens who live in the city and ultimately are the bread and butter of why the city works as a city. And I see a noticeable absence of our own citizenry in downtown as well as in uh, neighborhood corridors. And the reason for that is obviously uh, online shopping. And while during COVID, it was a great way to protect yourself. It was a wonderful way to really still be able to uh, sustain yourself as necessary products. That time is over. And I still see I live in a multi-residential building. There are 60 units where I live and everybody is continuing just as they did during COVID. Every item from the most simplest basic household uh, things, paper towels, et cetera, to everything else is being bought online. And until we encourage people to stop doing that, I think we will 
continue to lag to bring the city back to where it was. That includes neighborhood stores, that includes literally everything else. In the meantime, we don't even know which uh, shops have gone out of business downtown. I venture downtown ever so often, and all of a sudden the store I wanted to go to does not exist anymore. Uh, do we need to have a downtown festival with 5% off in every store that we used to go to? How do we bring people back and raise a responsibility, a reinstatement of commitment to the city, and have people basically wean themselves from buying everything online? I just threw that out as a question. Did anybody want to venture a response to Commissioner Moore? Uh, Kate Sophus, OEWD. Uh, thank you, Commissioner, for your comments. I think we, we have observed, uh, obviously, the same trends, and as a resident of the city myself, um, you know, we often talk, actually, uh, on, uh, across the teams that have been working on this, as well as with our downtown uh, stakeholders, that in this new era, we need to think about um, everyone as tourists into our downtown, and that includes people living on the west side of our own city. What is going to make the difference between someone deciding to get off their couch and get on Muni and head downtown, uh, whether that person is a 17-year-old individual, as I possess one, um, who might make a decision of where she goes with her friends, or whether it's um, someone who's working, again, from their home that day and making a decision to come into the core. Some of the retail trends that you're describing, um, in honesty, were, were beginning before COVID, and COVID accelerated them, right? So the trend for people to buy increasing quantities of things online, things that, uh, small items, I think, was a real shift before COVID that just accelerated so that you can buy a two-pack of AAA batteries and have it sent to your house, and it's real. Crazy. Um, so we recognize that. Couple of comments. The first is, with respect to retail, where we are seeing a bright spot is new forms of what I might call hybrid retail, where a brick and mortar retailer is smartly curating the kinds of products they have in the store um, to be things that are not as easy or not as unique to get online. So we see a real doubling down on retailers who are trying to create an experience that includes shopping. Um, and, and as someone who uh, spent a lot of time before I came to the city with SF Made and looking at local products, uh, we are still seeing some strength in those retailers that are also connected to local manufacturing. Again, where you can use that brick and mortar location, not as a place to have all inventory, but as a place to bring a consumer in to try something um, or to design something unique that might then in fact still be sent to your home. I want to call attention to a, a, a very exciting retailer that is uh, just a few months away from opening, and that is IKEA. Um, and I think IKEA, and this will be IKEA's first urban city location um, in the country. And what's interesting about it is that the model that they are trying to really invent here in San Francisco is trying to look at both, again, having retail be an experience where you can come in, try something, design something, um, and either on site be able to buy or also be able to design and have it um, shipped to your home. 
um, they are also looking at new ways to combine working or co-working um, with retail. And I use that as just one example, and that's a very big company, but we see the same kinds of innovation with our much smaller retails. It does mean that other innovations that really accelerated during the pandemic, such as the ability to, um, to pick up or drop off or order something and then go to the store to be able to get it same day, those kinds of, again, hybrid shopping experiences, I think are gonna become more the norm than the exception. And it does have implications for how we think about, for example, street level access and loading access and drop off access to our retailers. But I do believe there is hope. Um, and I do believe as we create more of those models, it will help us push back on, frankly, the ease or the laziness with which many of us um, press, press order on Amazon. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Braun? Yes, uh, first of all, just thank you so much for all the amazing work and thought that's gone into these efforts so far. It's great to get the presentation. Um, I know there's so much more to this and I look forward to reading all the details, although thank you for also not trying to share them all in this forum today. Um, <laughs> it's really great to see the, the level of cross-coordination that's really happening in this effort um, and it gives me a lot of heart and confidence that this is going to be an ongoing process that's going to be one of learning and adapting as we go. It's nice to see that this is not, you know, in my professional life, I work on a lot of economic development strategies for cities that are, you know, a five to 10 year plan. And it's great for them to have one sort of coordinated plan that's been bought into by their, their city councils. But at the same time, there's always a concern that it sort of narrows the scope of the ability to learn and adapt over time. So I like, to, I like that this is sort of a, a roadmap and, um, and the details will be fleshed out kind of as we go. I'm also really appreciative of the fact that we are studying these additional opportunities with that KPMG study um, and the ULI technical assistance panel. It seems like good timing for the TAP because often the guidance in those, they generate good ideas, but they take a lot more work to implement them. So um, it's, it's really great to see that happening right now. Um, you know, I, I think that one of, one thing that I think about a lot with the downtown recovery is what are sort of our fundamental assets as a downtown? And, and we have a lot of them, but one of the ones that stands out the most to me is, is our regional transportation connections, our BART connections, and um, also the Caltrain connections as well. And so, you know, I, as we think about changing sort of the nature and character of downtown, and I, I realize in downtown we're talking about the greater area, so there's a lot of different aspects to that, but still it is our core office oriented area, our core employment center. You know, in 2019, before the pandemic, the majority of the people who worked in San Francisco did not live in San Francisco. And uh, I just wanna make sure that whatever happens, whatever changes to land use planning and, and code that we make, we're still considering the, the importance of our downtown as a regional destination and a place where people can get to jobs in volumes that just aren't possible anywhere else in the region and a place where uh, a place where we, you know, I just want to make sure that we're keeping in mind the ability to leverage um, those those regional transportation connections. And so I think that this, as we re-envision downtown and maybe have more housing conversion, um, try to sort of make it into a more of a 24-7 community, which I'm fully in support of, I also want to make sure that we don't lose sight of the sort of greenhouse gas emission benefits and all the other benefits of our regional transportation connections in the area. Um, uh, let's see. 
Uh, one other thought here is, uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see what comes out of the study in terms of thinking creatively about our anchors for our downtown. Uh, as, as some of the retail prospects shift and change over time, I think it's time to get a little bit more creative and thinking about what is an anchor that brings in foot traffic from the region. And in some cases, this might be things like medical offices or you know, anything that's generating a lot of foot traffic during the day, during the evening. And we have, of course, the, the, uh, a lot of nightlife entertainment. It's good to see that, too. It's another, you know, one of those generators. But, um, yeah, I'm curious to see what happens in terms of thinking about sort of new alternative anchors. And my last thought on this is just uh, I really appreciate the points that were just being made about the, the retail flexibility in response to the transition towards the experiential sort of dining and drinking entertainment uses in retail that just can't be replicated online. Um, and I, I think that one thing for the Planning Commission, us as a commission to think about is also sort of the different ways in which retail spaces might get used and making sure that sort of different mixes of even multiple businesses in retail spaces can be accommodated, as well as activities such as, you know, maybe a small business uh, might be doing things like small-scale production and shipping from, for their online sales from a space in addition to selling their goods in that space. And historically, I don't think we've had a lot of this in our downtown area because the volumes of shoppers for specialized retailers has been so high. Um, this has tended to be a strategy employed in a lot of sort of secondary areas and other cities. But, um, yeah, I, I just think it'll be important to see if there's anything standing in the way of that kind of approach as well as approaches such as complementary businesses occupying the same space or a daytime business and a nighttime business occupying the same space. Um, but yeah, this is, this is really exciting. You can hear I'm amped up, so I, I appreciate this work. I look forward to seeing what else, what else emerges. Thank you, Commissioner Vaughn. Certainly an area where you have a lot of expertise, so glad to have you here with us. Commissioner Diamond. Uh, thank you to um, staff for such a well-coordinated presentation that touched on all the big picture issues and showed where the follow-up work is, is happening. I truly appreciate that. I have a number of uh, questions and comments in no particular order. So the first one I want to start, uh, well, first I want to say, Mr. Binfliff, did you get a job promotion or did you change jobs last time you were here or you were working for Supervisor Mandelman? Yeah, and now round three, department three. <laughs> well, congratulations. Keep him for a while, now. <laughs> We're lucky to have you in this new position. Um, question for OEWD. I wonder if you could explain in a little more detail um, how the gross receipts tax works. Um, are businesses that are still located, you know, in their current offices, but have fewer employees that come to those locations. Do they pay less in gross receipts tax than they used to? I, I want to make sure we're all on the same page as to understanding what the economic, where sure. the economic problem's coming from. Kate Sophus, OEWD. So without going into super detail, the best way to think about it is our gross receipts tax approach is a blend between um, understanding the revenue that is brought in by a business that has a business license and operates here and where the payroll is located. So where physically where those workers are located that can uh, be attributed to the production of, of revenue. So what that means is in practice, there is an incentive um, 
or a benefit economically to a business when their workers are not in San Francisco all the time, if that worker lives outside of the city. So the way to think of it is our gross receipts that we bring in is not just dependent on having businesses, right? So obviously if we have office vacancies, we're not generating gross receipts from no tenant, but even for those businesses that remain here with a hybrid work environment where many, not all, but many of their employees actually live outside of the city or have chosen to work outside of the city, uh, we receive less gross receipts tax. The apportionment is less because of where those workers are located. And so when, um, we didn't go into it today, but one of um, the mayor's uh, additional um, uh, hopes is that we collectively can undergo another revision of our overall um, gross receipts tax process in time for the next um, 2024 cycle because any changes to that would have to go, of course, to the ballot. But um, it is a continued work in progress to be able to take into account in our own way that we think about doing our taxes with our businesses this new reality of how people work. We weren't planning on this uh, the last time uh, we went through the process to, uh, to end up uh, with our current gross receipts process, which was something that we embarked on not that long ago when we used to be 100% payroll tax base. What we have ended up with now is we still are not distributed widely enough um, with which businesses are paying more gross receipts than less. We have too few businesses that we are overly dependent on. And so then when you have that introducing this, this hybrid um, environment, it has made our uh, predictability and security around how much tax we bring in from an individual business less predictable. So a, a couple of follow-up questions. Thank you. That's sure. very, very, very helpful. But um, so does that mean these businesses that have remote workers are paying less overall in gross receipt taxes or less to us and more to other jurisdictions where their, pay, where their employees are located? Well, I wish I could say competitively that other jurisdictions tax the businesses in the way that we do, but we already have a greater tax burden than other jurisdictions. So what ends up happening is the answer, quick answer, is pretty much no. They save money okay. by having workers not domiciled here in San Francisco, which then puts us at a competitive disadvantage. Okay. Um, and do we alone as a city have the ability to change um, the gross receipts tax, or does it require state legislation, or is it completely within our scope we it's pretty much our city but remember it's voter enabled so it's not something we can at a legislative level which are the two we have two current um, tax measures as we speak that are um, have been introduced by the mayor at the board we are able to do things such as um, temporarily suspend or reduce taxes but anything that fundamentally alters the overall way that we calculate taxes and certainly anything that would raise taxes on one entity versus another uh, because of course there are different tax rates but different business sectors those have to go to the voters okay thank you that was very helpful thank you uh, worrisome but um, <laughs> but helpful in understanding the context for it um, second question has to do with the conversion of Class B and C office buildings from uh, t to residential, which I know um, Gensler and Spur um, is looking at. 
What I didn't hear, looking at it, and I assume they're looking at it in terms of fire codes and building codes and electrical codes and sort of, you know, physically, how do we actually accomplish this? Um, but what I didn't hear you discuss were the fees that we assess um, when somebody uh, chooses to do a conversion. And I'm wondering if um, we have on the table for discussion either forgiveness or deferral of affordable housing fees if we switch from um, office space to uh, housing. I, I recognize, of course, that we have an obligation um, to deliver not only 82,000 dwelling units, but a large portion of those need to be affordable units and we need the funding for it. But um, we're also getting no funding um, and I'm by by uh, approving projects that aren't being built. And so I'm curious whether or not, in the case of downtown, where we have not only, we have two goals going on. One is we want to increase the vibrancy and achieve a 24-7 downtown, as you talked about. Whether or not in that particular instance, the desire to achieve that conversion, at least over the next few years, is more important than bringing in affordable housing fees from those projects, if that would jumpstart those projects. So is that discussion at all on the table? Yeah, so I think for the first phase, we're focused more on the control piece, so identifying what are the, the barriers and the codes, and then the second question around feasibility. So part of their work is they've been testing different typologies to see what would pencil and almost nothing is penciling, sort of similar to what we're seeing across the city. So I think this the question of what types of incentives would be needed to make those work is part of the conversation that we're having right now. Our plan would be to bring first to you legislation to just kind of get it over with in terms of the planning code barriers and then to have a second conversation around fees and feasibility. Okay, I just wanna make sure we're not losing sight of that because uh, we can change all the codes we want, um, but if developers aren't willing to actually undertake the construction because they're not economically feasible, then we're achieving no benefits whatsoever. So I, I get how important it is to have affordable housing and we need to do everything we can, but in the case of downtown, it strikes me that different rules um, might be appropriate um, if it jumpstarts uh, the use of these Class B and C office buildings that are empty or mostly empty and are not you know, productive for, for us from an economic perspective. Okay, um, next question and is somewhat related to um, Commissioner Braun's comment about institutional uses. Um, so I didn't see anywhere um, in the plan you presented today um, a discussion on or a focus on trying to attract, um, expand institutional uses, um, academic institutions. You know, we have a city that's got um, some world-class academic institutions in it. What role do they play? And I'll just be very specific. UCSF is doing a massive expansion on Parnassus Heights. Um, they were in front of us, they presented, you know, they're subject to the state's rules more than they are to ours, but have been discussions going on with UCSF and other uh, institutions in the city about their willingness to explore putting some of their uses downtown, particularly maybe student housing um, or office space um, that doesn't depend upon co-location uh, to the extent other uses might. I'm just wondering where you are in those discussions. Uh, Kate Sophis, OEWD. I am so glad you brought this up, Commissioner, because it is it is our view that 
Housing conversion has certainly been a vigorously um, debated topic in the media and, and every city, including ours, I think is rightfully looking at where some of our buildings make sense to be converted. Setting aside pencilability, which is a serious consideration, and setting also aside um, the structure of many of our downtown towers don't easily lend themselves to conversion because they're too, can't get light into the core, and setting all of that aside. We believe that we need to be looking at the whole spectrum of ways to have people inhabiting our buildings in our downtown. And so that means certainly housing. It also means looking at every single possible commercial or institutional use that could possibly work in these buildings. So when we look at the, um, the, the work, the body of work to look at diversifying our economic fabric, we would include looking at um, institutions from uh, medical uh, to uh, museums to um, anchor manufacturing, I have to say that, given my background. Uh, we have examples in other cities. Shinola comes to mind in Detroit that's actually being manufactured on five floors of an old office building. So I think our approach is, while we are looking at housing, to also look at all the other ways that are still commercial in some ways, but that are different from the single tenant uh, technology company, a classic user of many of our buildings that we've, we've had um, in recent years. Uh, another bright light that we're seeing is more co-working which is still, of course, an office use, but uh, people using those floors uh, very differently than, again, a single tenant. We are hearing from both national and local co-working companies that they're actually doing quite well and have more demand for space. So I do think that part of what we're going to be seeing is new kinds of commercial users, as well as new ways of demising space in our office buildings to, to allow people to take advantage of the way they want to work now. Fundamentally, when people do come into work, it's to collaborate. They don't come into work to sit at their cube to then get on a Zoom call right, with all their colleagues who aren't at work. So we are seeing a lot of trends on uh, really remaking the way the spaces within those offices work. And we're looking at those same things you know, here in city government at City Hall. So um, I am hopeful that what we collectively end up with is both Yes, conversion of some of these buildings, but also even more flexibility with how we let people commercially um, use um, many other office buildings, knowing that the overall economic drivers, again, of the region and the city still come from jobs. And I, I have to make that point as well, that the density of people when they come into work in an office building is just far greater than the density of people living in that same building. So. Um, I don't think we're gonna have that problem because many of our buildings just would be really hard to convert, but we really wanna have a balanced diet of some residential, but a, a lot more um, kinds of ways that people are working or having arts, you know, why not a multi-story uh, theater um, or a uh, performance uh, theater kind of thing like Sleep No More in New York. So I, I mean, I think it's sort of a, it's wide open right now and I, that's maybe the, the good news out of the, the challenge that we're, we're kind of working through. Are there any discussions going on with UCSF or is it just too far along in its planning? It has not started at a detailed level, but what I would say is UCF is already part of the sort of business anchor institution collaboration group. Um, 
So I wouldn't say anything concrete yet, but what I would say is we are already connected to um, those major anchors as well as um, our museums. And in fact, we, we have a museum uh, sort of pop-up underway right now. So we have museums who are not in um, the core who are already looking at temporary activations, and this is where the vacant to vibrant sort of program can even lend themselves to larger institutions experimenting with space in the core. I think I'm so focused on UCSF because they were in front of us not too long ago seeking our input, um, and my guess is our input would be considerably different um, if they were to be in front of us now. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels like they haven't yet broken ground. Um, they were trying to cram a lot into that space. Um, and if there is an opportunity to at least have a discussion with them about um, how their project could help contribute to the vibrancy of the entire city by thinking about if there are any uses that they were planning on either retaining or expanding at Parnassus, um, whether any of those could appropriately be redirected downtown, it's at least worth the discussion. I, I think that's really the only point I'm making there. We'd be happy to take that as an action okay. item. Um, next question is, is um, I'm intrigued by how um, you're flipping the way we think of downtown on its head. Instead of people come downtown and then stay um, to take advantage of restaurants and entertainment, that uh, we need to think about people coming downtown for some other purpose um, and then, you know, Perhaps they, you know, those would be the days that they would work in the office instead. Um, and I'm constantly reminded about what a success I think Salesforce Park is, um, uh, that it is an absolute attraction that brings people downtown. You know, I know whenever I have visitors here and sort of on the list of things you must see, it's, you know, you have to go downtown to, you know, experience Salesforce Park. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like um, you know the ferry building falls into that category as well too, and that focus on and further enhancement of you know the many um, ways we can take advantage of our spectacular waterfront um, that's downtown. Especially you know since I lived here long enough that I know how inaccessible it used to be while the freeway was still there that um, we have this unique resource and that whatever we can do um, to enhance that, and that's a planning issue as much as anything else, would be um, really important. I think about that as we were about to approve the waterfront plan um, that's in front of us uh, in the next couple of weeks, that um, it can play many roles, including uh, the one that you are talking about, which is what are the attractants that bring people downtown? And then um, the last thing I would say is um, I, I just think your emphasis on your last point about tell our story is absolutely critical. Um, that our story can't be framed by the national press elsewhere. Um, I, I, my guess is I'm not alone in this room in being someone who pinches herself every day when I'm walking in some part of the city and think I'm so lucky to live here. I see some buildings, some sites, some act of random kindness, um, some view where I think this is, you know, this is the most magical place. Sure, it has a slew of problems. Um, and, you know, we need to focus on fixing them, but let's not lose sight of what an unbelievably um, gorgeous place this is um, with a compassionate population that tries to fix things and that we need to tell that story our way um, that reflects who we are as a population instead of allowing others. You know, one, one thought about that is, um, well, it's, 
not so much about downtown, is I'm curious whether studies have been done to show whether our neighborhoods have thrived, um, even though the downtown suffered. All those people in the city who used to work downtown, are they now eating lunch in neighborhood restaurants? Are they meeting for coffee in neighborhood cafes? Are they frequencing neighborhood markets and neighborhood theaters that they didn't used to? I mean, I, the focus here is obviously on having a vibrant downtown, but if one of the side effects um, is a positive impact on you know, the neighborhood commercial centers, then I think that's an important fact that should be out there as well too as, as we tell our story. So I, I don't know if there's work that's been done or if there's a way to measure that, but I feel like that's an important part of, of this story as well too. Um, I am going to invite actually our Director of Economic Recovery Initiatives to talk a little bit about exactly sort of what we're seeing on that data. Hi, uh, Commissioners. Thank you for letting me come up. I'm Kat Daniel, Director of Economic Recovery Initiatives. And just to address your question around what has happened in the neighborhoods, we have been tracking sales tax data across all of the neighborhoods, including downtown. Um, and. And so what we have seen is that, yes, our neighborhoods are performing much, much uh, better than downtown. And at this point, I think the latest data that we have is from Q4 of 2022, so just December. And some of our neighborhoods are up 10 to 15% as compared with pre-pandemic, while downtown still remains below 25%. Um, I will say, however, that despite the fact that the neighborhoods are doing better, and I think that this is a theory, is largely because of work from home and exactly the point that you're making about meeting for, at coffee shops or working at coffee shops and going to lunch, we do have a net loss citywide. And that is largely attributable to the, the population loss that we sustained during the pandemic as people moved out as well as the fact that both tourism is down and office commuting from outside of San Francisco is significantly down. And while those people concentrated in downtown, they would then sometimes go out to the neighborhoods and spend. Um, and so we are still sustaining a loss, but it is most acute in downtown. Yes, sir. Thank, thank, you. thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner Diamond. Commissioner Bureau. Um, thank you, and I believe I reiterate or support many of the comments um, of the commissioners here so far. Um, you know, our downtown is small, and we have big dreams. Um, so um, I remember back then there was um, a video, a YouTube video, where this one person is trying to get a, a quiet place in San Francisco, and everywhere he goes to a park, to a cafe, people are filled, and now <laughs> we're... You know, that's the big challenge for us, right? Um, but I th it also reminds me as well in terms of um, back in a couple of years when the former or the late mayor, Ed Lee, was trying, doing the, um, the, you know, the, the t I remember there was this like the Twitter tax break and how it also created um, a lot of tension in San Francisco in terms of the, you know, you know there were businesses also that closed down. Um, there were also gentrification that happened. Um, all of a sudden, the rents went up. Um, so 
as we are also thinking about, and I think I, I think there were issues back then that, is st that I still feel like still resonate to this day, in terms of the issue of, in, of transportation, the transportation infrastructure. Um, you know, during that time, our transportation is, um, you know, I, I think um, it still needs a lot of improvement, and even until now, um, and it caused a lot of delays for workers as well. So um, I think I just want to be mindful of as we are trying to, of course, recover the downtown, the main infrastructures as well also need to be um, planned as well. As I remember, as the Mission Bay um, started being more developed, um, the issues of access to grocery stores, the schools, those are things that was also being a challenge too. Um, but this is COVID, but I feel like some of the issues are still coming back. Um, and I also still want to highlight that as we are trying to understand what is the future of office, um, I also want to remind us to strengthen our, or to think about or strengthen our local economy. What is good for, what is our economy? Um, kind of like when you, um, uh, in South Korea and how they made their culture, their pop culture, their main economy at the same time. So I, I just want us to be also mindful of that, like as during the Twitter tax break and all of that gentrification, there were many artists and musicians who were displaced. Um, and also nightclubs are also closed down in terms of opening up new condominiums. So there were um, there were some in terms of the local economy as well are actually also being um, replaced. Um, so I also want us to be mindful that we need, in terms of the um, racial and social equity, that we also need to highlight the local economy that we actually really need to support. And one thing that is a main struggle is, of, of course, we wanted to have, I mean, making a small business in San Francisco is really hard. So I'm really looking forward in these pop-ups, um, you know, project that the OEWD is starting and really promoting the, the, the BIPOC immigrant-owned type kind of businesses. And it's the cost of creating a business that is a big hindrance. Um, I, there's one cafe that is just a, a block away from where I live and she complains how you know, she's a Latina and she's very grateful that she got to, you know, um, have her own business, but it took about a couple of years for her to, um, you know, to settle that. And so that is, um, so, you know, as we're thinking about the cost of businesses, a main part of it, too, of the cost are the rent. Um, there are also many established, you know, and that's, I think, the reason why we have legacy business is that, you know, the, the costs are really, really expensive. And I, that sounds also to think about the current progress that we, that we have that we need to strengthen more. Um, and one thing that I remember um, I, as we are talking about downtown as a, as a space, um, as a connection of space as well, um, that, you know, I mean, I think the idea of flea markets and, you know, nighttime markets, um, I mean, that also supports small local businesses as well, and that also creates more foot, foot traffic, and that would probably help me to get out of my, 
my bum as well. Um, and I hope there's more in also in the west side, actually, my neighborhood. I think the, the, the closest to me is the Stonestown. But I wish there is one that is, you know, that is just along the 19th Avenue. I mean, I'm talking about now, since the OEWD is here, um, you know, hopefully there's one on 19th Avenue in Terrible. Um, but, but yeah, that's something that I would like to look forward to as we are trying to um, create our own local economy. And I want, and as we are trying to sell, uh, to tell our own stories, I think um, I really um, sympathize with a lot of the, the artists. I mean, San Francisco has that deep root history when it comes to art and many of local musicians have come, you know, Janis Joplin, we can, we can name a lot of, um, of artists that came from San Francisco. Um, in terms of the, um, I think uh, also one of the, um, I think one of the planner, um, Matthew Snyder, sent us the IPIC annual report, and um, perhaps there's some, um, on one of these days he can actually give us a presentation because that actually focuses also on the office revenues, and um, I think there are some projects that are still um, underway, unfortunately, or not, you know, not fully funded yet. Um, in terms of the um, office conversions to housing, so I also want to be mindful as well in terms of the needs of the families. As we are trying to accommodate everyone, um, which is a big struggle too, as uh, so we're trying to think about you know, student housing, but also we also need to think about the family's housing as well. Um, so you know, again, these are gonna be the type of feasibilities that probably will have to read into. Um, but I also don't want to shortcut, again, also the need for the affordable housing. Um, so, so yeah, I am real, um, this is, you know, in a short manner of time, this is a big, um, this is a big plan. But at the same time, I'm also looking forward to it. I hope in some part of the downtown plan, we get to put some sort of a sanctuary, a quiet place too, as we're trying to busy ourselves. Because I remember before pandemic, that was one of my, you know, where can I have a peace of mind as I go into church? <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's about it. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much and um, looking forward to the rest of the plan. Thanks. Thanks, Commissioner Imperial. Commissioner Koppel. Yeah, so just a couple comments. Thanks to every everything um, staff's presented us today. Um, you know, I try to stay hopeful and like most things in life things are cyclical I mean in the early 2000s it couldn't have been any busier back in between 08 and 2010 things just completely dried up people were out of work for years um, and it's not just you know the the highest paid white-collar workers it's also the, the medium paid and lower waged paid blue-collar workers and this really hits home, especially with them, because a lot of them, their, their benefits and their uh, health care is all dependent on their work hours. So when people aren't working, they don't just not get their paycheck. They don't have their benefits, and they can't take their kids to the doctor. So it's, it's as dire as it may seem. And I think uh, uh, we're, it's starting to sink in that this is maybe not going to bounce back like we hoped it would. Uh, again, we, we do need to be relying on our assets. And don't forget that downtown not only has those tall buildings, but it has a lot of open space. It had a, has a lot of plazas. It had a lot has a lots of uh, areas for for seating and convening. Um, and I do remember there used to be some some raging parties down on Front Street every every St. Patrick's Day. So I don't think it'd be a terrible idea to shut down that little part of Front Street between Sacramento and California, and maybe uh, 
kind of blow that up uh, every other Friday or, or more often. Um, but, you know, we also have the ferry building that's not just a, an iconic monument, but um, fronts are very walkable. Embarcadero, also a huge transit um, transfer point. And then our very, you know, walkable Market Street um, are still huge assets that we need to try and take advantage of as much as we can. But also, um, you know, s people are still complaining that downtown's not as safe as they'd like it to be. And, and if you start creeping up into the Tenderloin and Van Ness, it's there's still some some dicey areas, um, and the Muni Muni ridership is still ridiculously down, so we're, we're losing a lot of revenue from from just that right there. Um, but again, it's refreshing to see that we're all at least putting our heads together and thinking of some outside of the box drastic ideas which may need to happen. Thank you. I just have a few comments and questions, and certainly support pretty much everything that everyone said today. I think, you know, one of the interesting things about it is just the way that it's framed, which is recovery. And I think, just touching on what Commissioner Koppel just said, recovery to me is like going back, right? But I don't think we're going back, right? We're, we're actually creating something new. We're reestablishing, reimagining downtown. And I think a couple of things I want to highlight, you know, what if we imagine that it's going to be a long turn at this corner, but instead of, you know, trying to court businesses that, to move here, but how do we help people start businesses? And that's not just a storefront business that's starting different types of arts businesses, tech businesses, whatever industry it is. How do we actually have investments in incubation of businesses here locally of all types? And to Commissioner Imperial's point, it can't be hard to, to start a business. So I think what, what we need to close is the gap between the rhetoric of this plan and the reality that people experience in the city. So we can't say, we really, really want you to start a business, and then it takes someone $200,000 to not start a business, right? If we have that reality existing, we can say as much as we want, start a business, start a business, but people will say, well, I can't. Or that message, to your point around the narrative, that narrative is stronger than the reality of the counterpoints, then who's going to want to start a business here? And so I think we really have to try to close that gap and so think about what does it look like to have incubation space that's either supported by the city or we are collaborating with accelerators and other existing um, institutions to make it really easy um, to start a business, to join together with others with your ideas, and to have your business physically be located in downtown San Francisco. Um, going along with that, it has to be a place to have fun. Like, you have to want to come downtown to have fun. I think we've all kind of basically talked about that in different ways. And so I think that's probably the shortest cut to some vibrancy is events. Um, having events, they certainly take work to put on. But if we can have some good events that draw people from the city and also from the region downtown, then I think we can get some traction, some belief that, yeah, downtown can um, be a vibrant place. It is a vibrant place. And that's going to attract more of the stickiness of people saying, I want to have my office down there because there's fun stuff to do, or I want to go down there on a Saturday because I know there's something fun and interesting going on, which I think relates to the anchor conversation. Um, I love the idea of education institutions, medical offices, things that have a very physical, you got to come there, you want to come there, you need to come there um, to be able to take part in whatever the service is, so whether it's something you need like medical or something that's maybe more... Um, entertainment driven like an, a museum, how do we have those really stand out and also have a very obvious and physical presence in the street um, with the events, again, kind of connecting um, to that. And then lastly, um, I think we really have to, we really do have to make this place clean and safe. I mean, last week after this commission hearing, 
I walked down, this was a very interesting little impromptu study. I was like, I need to get something. And so I walked down to go to Macy's and I was like, wait, I'm gonna go to Nordstrom Rack instead. Nordstrom Rack was closed at seven o'clock. So it was already closed by the time I got there. So I got to Macy's, which closes at eight, by the way. Um, so I got to Macy's, looked around. They didn't have what I wanted. I asked, where is this thing? And they said, we used to sell it, but we don't even sell it online anymore because theft was too much of it. And she's like, I don't know why we stopped selling it online, but we don't even sell it online. So then I had to hike over back to Nordstrom, the real Nordstrom, not the rack this time, which is also open till eight. And I was finally able to get it. And then I walked home, the streets were dead, like no one out except UN Plaza was full of people and it was not feeling very safe, but I'm like fine with it, whatever. But you know, just that experience of trying to get around, find something, and just the street life at that time of night, it just is not where we need it to be. And so again, we have to close that gap between this idea that we're gonna have all these people and it's gonna be great, and the reality that we experience on the street you know, when we're out there um, in the evening. So just figuring out how to really continue to put resources there and make it a place that people want to come. And when they do come, they feel really safe and they feel really excited to come. So it, it does lead me to one question, which I, I'm curious if any of the studies that are coming up or the studies that have been done kind of look at what actually draws people to downtown right now. Like what is bringing people either from the East Bay or the peninsula or San Francisco to downtown, do we have it? Because what I don't want us to do is just like do things because we think people will like them and come and we don't actually know what is actually drawing people to downtown. Thank you, uh, Commissioner. Yes, the Bay Area Council Foundation, which is teamed up with KPMG, is doing a survey effort because so we don't have data sources about that now. That that information is too fresh. They are doing a survey, one of employers in mm -hmm. downtown and one of uh, Bay Area residents, including like the nine county Bay Area, to ask them exactly those questions. Like how long has it been since you went downtown? What did, what caused you to go downtown? Why would you go downtown? Why are you not going downtown? All of those questions. So we hope to have at least some insight based on that in the next month. Okay, that's good to hear because I think, and I think I, I'm glad to hear you asking the questions that are kind of asking people to reflect on their experience because I know if you ask people what they want, they say one thing. If you ask people what they actually done, they say a different thing. So I think focusing on what people actually do versus what they think that they would like to do if they were a better person who had more time and more money, um, I think is really important to, to focus on. Um, and we also had a question about the dashboard and the metrics. If you could talk a little bit about what metrics we will be tracking over time and um, what we hope to learn from those. Sorry, I'm, the, I'm the data contact. <laughs> um, so the dashboard is actually on the website now and you can see uh, we have a series of dashboards and if I can recall them all off of head. Uh, we are tracking migration and office attendance as well as tourism based on like hotel uh, occupancy and and employments, both domestic and international. Uh, we are tracking employment in both the unemployment rate of San Francisco residents as well as the number of jobs that San Francisco-based companies are producing and how that is recovering and changing over time. Uh, we are tracking income after housing and how that compares to other cities. And we are tracking uh, office vacancy rate. We're tracking BART. Uh, system ridership. We might be tracking tracking a couple of other things, but I think that that's most of them. That's good to hear. And yeah. while I have you, do you all have data, or is it part of the analysis, or maybe it's been looked at or deemed not important? Kind of understanding like where people are coming from downtown, because I have this kind of thinking around, you know, 
as the tech industry heated up and San Francisco housing prices became astronomical, you know, many people left the city to live in the region and still commuted downtown. And then now that was no longer necessary or not to commute as frequently downtown as they once were. And they live somewhere else where it's still cheaper to live and they maybe have more amenities. So I just wonder what sense of kind of like where are the hot spots for dwelling and for people who are still coming into downtown? Yes, so, um, so KPMG is looking at that from a data perspective using sort of publicly available data sources and are partnering up with all of our transit agencies, local and regional, in order to really get as much real-time information about that as possible to see how those trends have changed. Like, is our perimeter sort of expanding based on work from home? Because an hour and a half commute is not so bad when it's only two, two times a week. Mm -hmm. when that's completely, you know, non-viable five days a week. So, um, so we are trying to look at that. Um, we also have, through our partners, um, community-based, uh, community benefits districts, some of them have access to cell phone data and are tracking, you know, how many people come into their district and exactly where those people are coming from. We do not have access to a tool like that right now, but are but are cobbling together based on sort of what we can borrow from partners. Okay, and I don't know if this is a question for you or for Ms. Sophis, but I'm just curious, like if we think about the timetable of recovery, and we think about maybe in the short term, like it's events that are drawing people in the medium or long term, it's new businesses starting and filling up vacant space. What does that timetable look like versus, because I know we want it to be like tomorrow, but I, I get the sense it's probably not gonna happen. So right. if, you know, and especially we have folks who have large leases who still have them even if they're not full. And so those have to turn over, they have to be released to a new company, whether it's a new company or a company that's newly relocating to that office space. Just what are we realistically looking at in terms of going from maybe we're trying to increase our nightlife to like we're actually getting the 24 seven with like daytime and nighttime uses kind of being pretty vibrant. Okay, I will take a crack at this and then Kate can jump in if she, um, if she has more information. Um, so we're looking at like probably at least a five-year recovery in terms of really, I mean, right now we have a 25% vacancy rate in our offices and we have never filled up that, you know, that is millions of square feet of offices that need to be filled. Um, and so, just the reality, the, the logistics of filling that much space is going to take years. Um, I think that we are operating and what the recovery plan attempts to present is a short, a medium, and a long-term strategy and what we are doing to implement all of that at one time, recognizing that some of these things will move faster. Some of these things will lay the groundwork for the medium and long-term strategies to really take hold, but that some of these things are going to are going to really take a significant amount of time. So I think that right now our it, right now our projections are around five years. Okay, thank you. My last set of comments is looking directly at planning department's work and what we are doing. And so thank you, Ms. Lingwa, for um, presenting the information of what we're doing. I, I think one of our top areas is around office to residential conversions. And I would just say that it, it gives, it, I know why we're all excited about the idea, but I just don't know if practically it is the place we should put that many resources because the number of buildings that are potentially eligible, both from a number of criteria, physically eligible, an owner who wants to do it, et cetera, just seems marginal at best 
compared to the scale of the problem we're trying to solve. Which doesn't mean we don't do it where it makes sense and you have those things aligning, but how much staff energy and resources we should put towards researching that, I, I don't know. And then further, I think the Chronicles article on Calgary um, in Alberta, Canada was very instructive and it costs money. Should public resources be going to converting these? Again, I'd rather have the St. Patrick's Day party, you know, supported by public dollars than converting, you know, one office building to however many housing units in terms of the scale of what that can mean for the greater downtown. So I just want us to be very cautious about this, not that we shouldn't look at it, but I'm not really sure how big of a solution that is to the problem um, that we're trying to solve. Um, and so just thinking about our resources being, being limited and, and kind of being mindful of where we put them. Um, with that said, I think those are all of my comments. I don't know, Jonas, we had a, we had a, um, the only last comment I want to pick up on, and we can talk to staff about this and relater, is Mr. Wu's comment about the, um, the reporting for the Central SOMA plan obviously got put on hold, like many things, because of the pandemic, so maybe we can take a look at uh, making sure we can provide that report. I, yeah, I, I actually wanted to just give you a little bit of information about both that and IPIC, because I think we should uh, follow up with the IPIC report, which is, how the plan uh, implementation funds have been spent. And there's a lot of good news there because that was money that a lot of it came in before the pandemic and it's been spent and we've seen a lot of things built. So uh, Matt has a presentation he gave to Capital Planning. We could definitely give that to you as soon as our Commission Secretary can find some time on the calendar. Um, but secondly, the use of staff on reporting is a really good question. I think the pandemic um, has caused us to look really critically about where we're putting staff resources and how it makes sense. And so our data analysis group has been working to move things to more of a dashboard component like what you're seeing on OEWD's site so that there's a dynamic, live, spontaneous information available instead of sinking a lot of resources in thoroughly laid out and graphically designed. They're beautiful documents but a lot of time after you know one read the first week of publication, they don't seem to get much use on our website. So uh, that's something that they're looking at transitioning to, and we can certainly talk to you about that in the yeah, future Yeah, that'd as be well. great to hear, and I think it'd be good for um, folks like the folks who were part of Central Soma to understand how our thinking is evolving and maybe even provide what they'd hope to see on some of those dashboards, and of course what we would hope to see as well so we can keep um, tracking what's happening there. Um, do we still have that last public commenter who wanted to comment? We will let that person speak now. Again, you'll need to press star six to unmute yourself. This is Sue Esther. Thank you for letting me speak. I've been waiting since David Wu spoke. I wanted to basically follow up on what he said. Uh, the downtown area has had a, surrounding the downtown area has had a lot of middle income and lower income housing for decades. And the concern that he has and I have is that we have concentrated too much on building high-end condos, especially in parts of South of Market. And so it's one of the areas that we should basically dig in on. Implementation of the housing element needs to be more than getting maximum amount of upper income housing. So it's a huge issue. You had a, a big hearing last week, went on for hours, about San Bruno Avenue. And one of the problems that that hit me is people were talking about how much they were paying for their market rate 
little housing that was totally illegal. I don't know, I, I assume the Planning Commission was paying attention as well. People paying for a small apartment out on in the Portola district, three and $4,000 is ridiculous. One of the things that we need to focus on is, pardon me, that was a, a case of the corruption in DBI that allowed that to happen. Um, and then you have another hearing in a couple weeks on, on uh, uh, San Bruno Avenue. We need to pay attention to housing for working people in the downtown area, in the periphery of the downtown area. Filipino community is hugely impacted by uh, office buildings that are uh, going in and upper income housing close to south of market. So please pay attention to housing. I was one of the few people who was probably around. I was involved in the downtown plan that when she showed the book, I have that book in my office. So there was a bunch of us that were involved back in 1980 on the downtown plan. Uh, but we are really committed to keeping low-income tenants in the city and low-income housing in the city and increasing the supply of low and moderate-income housing. People that work in the city need housing in the city. We don't want to all commute 20 miles, 20 miles. People commute 50 miles into the city. I will let this go, but it's basically two sides of the same issue. Thank you, Ms. Hester. Thank you. Okay, final, final last call for public comment on this matter. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no additional requests to speak, public comment is closed and all right, we have, uh, Ms. Rogers is going to make one more comment. Yep, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, thank no you uh, very much for your thoughtful questions and direction, commissioners. I, I certainly learned a lot through listening to you. In fact, we brought the whole team here to hear and be able to respond. So I just wanted to thank also, in addition to the speakers, uh, Joshua Switsky, Allison Albarecci, and Dylan Hamilton. Great, yeah, thank you all for being here. Thank you for your work. We are going to uh, take a short break, and then we'll come back for the remainder of the agenda. Five minutes or five minutes? Okay, very good. SFGov TV, San Francisco Government Television.
Okay, good afternoon and welcome back to the San Francisco Planning Commission hearing for Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. Commissioners, we left off under your regular calendar, item 12 for the waterfront plan certification of the final environmental impact report was or has already been continued to March 9th. So that will place us on item 13 for case number 2019, CUA at 3434 17th Street. This is a conditional use authorization. Thank you. And before Maggie speaks, I just wanted to uh, introduce Maggie Lausch. Um, she is a planner, too, at the department who started with us about a year and a half ago. After moving to San Francisco in 2014, Maggie fell in love so much with the city that she went to grad school so that she could professionally contribute to keeping San Francisco wonderful. She earned a master's in city planning at UC Berkeley's College of Environmental Design and interned with Rec Park's Capital Planning Division prior to joining the department during the thick of COVID. Um, she's been a great addition to our team, and we're really thrilled to have Maggie on staff. Thanks. Thanks so much, Liz. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners. I'm Maggie Lausch, Planning Department staff. The item before you is a condition, request for conditional use authorization pursuant to Planning Code Section 762 and 303 to allow a public parking lot use in a portion of an existing parking lot accessory to Duggan's Funeral Service at 3434 17th Street for a period of time not to exceed five years. The proposed public lot, Golden State Parking, would provide 21 standard parking stalls available to the general public. Duggins would reserve parking spaces as needed for funerals and events. The public lot would be located within lots 13 and 14 east of Duggins and accessed via the existing curb cut on 17th Street. In January 2020, the sponsor conducted a parking demand study, the results of which demonstrate a continued lack of excess parking capacity within a half mile of the site, including during peak evening and weekend periods in the Valencia neighborhood commercial transit district. The planning department has received communications from two neighborhood residents in opposition to the project, with concern centering on adverse excuse me, adverse impacts to pedestrian and cyclist safety on 17th Street, which features bike lanes, and highlighting the presence of transportation alternatives nearby, including Muni service and the 16th Street Mission BART station. Since the publication of the staff report, the department has received three letters in support of the project from business owners in the neighborhood, emphasizing the limited availability of on and off street parking nearby for their customers and their staff, and how the presence of an attendant at the public lot has positively impacted the street. A conditional use was granted for a public parking lot on this site in April 2016, prior authorization, for a term not to exceed three years, also to Golden State Parking. The site configuration authorized at that time included vehicle access onto Albion Street and movable planters blocking the 17th Street entrance. There were considerable delays with the building permit and with demonstrating compliance with that configuration. So the planning department recommends and I've distributed uh, amended conditions of approval um, to shorten the period of time to vest this authorization with a building permit from three years to one year. But in summary, the department finds the project to be necessary, desirable, and compatible with the surrounding neighborhood for the following reasons. The project provides a much needed amenity to the community and business district. The site would otherwise be underutilized as accessory parking solely for Duggan's funeral service. The project is on balance consistent with the objectives and policies of the general plan and the mission area plan. 
This concludes staff's presentation. I'm happy to answer questions, and the project sponsor is also available. Thanks. Thank you, Ms. Lausch, and welcome to the Planning Commission. Project sponsor, you have five minutes. Good afternoon, commissioners. Can I get the laptop overhead, please? Justin Zucker from Ruben Junius and Rose on behalf of Golden State Parking, operator of the public parking facility at 17th Street. Uh, the operator, Urkan, is here with me if any questions come up. Since this item was on consent before, I'll focus on the opposition in my presentation. For better or worse, I think most folks know this property. Historically, it has been for the worse as the site of Duggan's funeral service since 1932, where the city's residents came to pay their respects to the dearly departed before their last trip south to Colma. Fun fact, in 1912, more than 150,000 bodies were removed from San Francisco to Colma, with the Mission, District, Mission Dolores Cemetery being the last remaining cemetery in the city because the Presidio is federal land. More recently, it has been known for the better as a safe, secure place to park one's car in a very congested part of town without sufficient parking known for car break-ins. Duggins was one of the many mortuaries in the city along Valencia's street corridor because it was rich in transit. Till the 1940s, a trolley ran down Valencia Street to Daly City to transport the dead and the funeral processions. In fact, special train cars were utilized. The need for transit makes sense given the service customs involve door-to-door -door processions. While comments were received concerned about traffic fatalities, there have not been any fatalities along 17th Street since Golden State's operations began. The project provides a necessary and desirable service. Duggins is given priority use when they hold services. Golden State still provides valet service for Duggins services, which is a significant benefit for Duggins patrons that are disabled or mobility challenged. As mentioned, the area is short on parking. Numerous nearby restaurants Restaurant proprietors utilize the parking lot and have submitted letters of support. For these reasons, we urge you to grant conditional use authorization for this temporary parking lot use for five years. Before ending, I wanted to share a couple wonderful historic juxtaposition photos that I found when researching this property, and they're viewed from the southwest. This is, I believe, from around 1929, whereas we have one from the late 90s. That concludes my presentation. The project sponsor and I are available for any questions. Thank you. Um, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. You need to come forward if you are in the chambers. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three. If you're on WebEx, you need to raise your hand. Seeing no members of the public wishing to address you, commissioners, public comment is closed and this matter is now before you. Thank you. I don't have uh, many questions. Thank you, staff, for a great staff report and product sponsor for a pretty straightforward presentation. I think this seems fairly reasonable. Certainly, we like to see parking lots turn over at the same time. Um, <clears throat> having the, the dual use of it being able to be used for the funeral home, which is typically a vehicle-heavy um, event, um, just the way that we do funerals in the United States, and allowing it to be used for something else when it's not in use by the funeral home seems like a really good use of um, what would still probably just be a parking lot um, if we don't have this um, conditional use. So those are my thoughts, and I'll call in Commissioner Braun. Yes, uh, I, I do have one question. So uh, to department staff, I guess, am I understanding correctly that the entrance is being moved, when, when it's in use as a paid parking lot, the entrance is being moved from Albion Street to 
17th Street, is that right? So the previous CUA suggested that instead of the way that the funeral home had used the lot for accessory parking off of, with access off of 17th Street, an existing curb cut, that to sort of mitigate impacts to like pedestrian and bicycle traffic, that commercial patrons would turn onto Albion and enter through the curb cut there. I think that we had some issues verifying that that configuration was ever uh, enacted on the site. Uh, following the conditions of approval from that CUA. Mm -hmm. So the project before you proposes that the access is just off of 17th Street, and actually the lot that connects to Albion Street uh, north of Duggins is not a part of this project. It is simply not involved. Interesting. I mean, so the lot that's, that's north of it, is that, can you access that from within? Because it's all just one continuous park, surface parking lot once you're in... Area, yes, correct? I yeah. do not believe that there is any physical barrier between lots 13 and 14 and lot 16, but I would defer to the project sponsor to provide more information. Okay. If I understand the question correctly, you're wondering about access throughout the entire parking lot, accessory parking lots? I think my primary question still is more about, um, you know, why access is shifting from Albion to 17th Street, in part because the the turn to Albion allows, and this is probably not desirable for the folks who live on Albion, but the turn to Albion allows the, the cars to, to uh, queue up a little bit if necessary, whereas on 17th Street, to make the right turn, they queue up in the bike lane or ac cut across the bike lane, and 17th Street bike lane is very heavily used. Um, I use it a lot myself. I used to live on Dearborn Street directly across. Um, it's the yeah. perpendicular street directly across from this. Um, and so I, I am just trying to kind of get my mind around sort of whether this is a change that's going to be, that the entrance will be on 17th Street now or uh, why it should be on 17th Street. Just exploring a little bit. Yeah, I understand the question. Thank you for clarifying. Um, the prior authorization, albeit, uh, had the entrance off of Albion. In fact, that was never actually executed upon. Entrance has always been off of 17th Street. And I think that's a byproduct of, as mentioned, this, the Duggins property is actually four separate parcels, indis distinct parcels. Mm -hmm. The parking lot, that, the accessory parking lot that we're talking about is two separate distinct parcels. The Duggins building itself is another third parcel. And the Albion strip of parking that I'll call it, that is a fourth parcel. And the lease is for the two parcels that are fronting on 17th Street. And that's why, as I mentioned in the uh, presentation, there have been no incidences since they've taken operation at this property. One of the things that I think is a, a reason for that is there is an attendant there uh, to address the queuing. When people come up, they pull in, the attendant takes the car immediately and puts it away. Uh, so that reduces the opportunity for queuing to come up and result in backing up into the bikeway, which is, again, I, I speculate because I don't have an answer to it, but I, which is why I speculate there have been no incidences and why there have been no complaints received by the operator in the years since. I see. Okay. Um, I mean, I can say from personal experience that I, I think it's actually more related to when there are funerals that becomes a tricky bike lane, but um, more to navigate. But I, regardless, um, I think that this is essentially a continuation of a, a greater use of an existing um, parking lot. And so um, I'm... I don't have any 
particular strong concerns at this time. Thank you. We do have one public commenter. We'll go to that person and then to Commissioner Koppel. Again, you'll need to press star six to unmute yourself. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Alex Lansberg with the electrical industry. Um, just a quick thing. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not calling to either oppose or support this project, but I did want to note uh, and encourage you uh, to, to encourage the project sponsor here to add electrical vehicle charging to this project. Uh, as many of you are probably aware, uh, San Francisco has an EV parking lot uh, ordinance. Uh, but it only applies to parking lots over 100 spaces, so this one is not covered. Nonetheless, as um, a, as we see project sponsors moving forward with things like this, I think it's uh, it's uh, it's useful to think about how we can use these processes to expand our uh, EV charging infrastructure, which is really lacking uh, over the, throughout the uh, throughout the city uh, overall. So, thank you for your time. Um, I'll, Really resource on my time. Thanks. Thank you, Commissioner Koppel. Yeah, just wanted to follow up on that. Are, are there any plans or even just like entertainment of the thought of installing any charging stations? Thank you for the question, Commissioner. Uh, we've never had a request for that in the past. Uh, it's certainly something we can look into. One of the, there's 21 spaces at this parking lot. One of them is a car share space, so it does help serve the community in that way. Thank you. Any motions, Commissioner Koppel? Uh, motion to approve. Second. Very good, Commissioners. There is a motion that has been seconded to approve this matter with conditions on that motion. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Uh, can I just clarify that's with the conditions as amended? Yes, with the, yes, okay. the corrections. Yep. Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously seven to zero, placing us on item 14 for case number 2021-006164-CUA-258 Cumberland Street. This is also a conditional use authorization. Good afternoon, President Tanner, Vice President Moore, and members of the commission. My name is Vincent Page, Planning Department staff. The project before you is a request for conditional use authorization pursuant to Planning Code Sections 209.1, 303, and 317 to legalize the tantamount to demolition of a single family home located at 258 Cumberland Street. On June 28, 2019, building permit application number 2017-0315-1554 was issued to allow a vertical and horizontal expansion to the subject property. In the field, work exceeded approvals and resulted in the removal of 63% of the building's horizontal elements and 74% of its vertical envelope elements. This amount of removal meets the definition for residential demolition in Planning Code Section 317B2C. The subject building permit was suspended on June 1st, 2021, and a planning code enforcement case was opened. The proposal would not change the design of the project that the department approved in 2019. As proposed by the project sponsor, the project would result in the construction of a three-story, 3,954-square-foot, five-bedroom, single-family dwelling, and approximately, with approximately 1,250 square feet of open space, and exposure on the front and rear of the building. Though the project site is located within the central neighborhood's large residence special use district, 
it is not subject to that district's controls for residences exceeding 3,000 square feet because it was accepted for review in 2021. When the project was first noticed, it included a roof deck and exterior stairs along the west property line. These features were removed by the project sponsor in response to neighborhood feedback. The department is not aware of any additional opposition to the project. We received one additional letter in the last week reaffirming a desire to ensure that the project not contain a roof deck, which was reflected in the plans before you. The department is, recomm is recommending the addition of a second dwelling unit to maximize density within, within an RH2 zoning district. With minimal to no impact on the proposed exterior design, the building could accommodate a second dwelling unit with exposure on the front and the rear, and with access to more open space than is required by code. The plans included in the packets before you as Exhibit B were submitted by the project sponsor and do not show a second dwelling unit. If the project is modified by the commission as recommended by the department, staff would work with the project sponsor to modify the plans as needed. In closing, the department finds the project to be necessary, desirable, and compatible with the surrounding neighborhood and consistent with the goals, objectives, and policies of the general plan as it would maximize density within an RH2 district and um, as if if modified as recommended by staff. It would also help to abate a violation of the planning code. The project site is currently a development project that's been stagnant for two years. This concludes my presentation and I'm available for any questions. Thank you. Thank you, project sponsor, you have five minutes. Hello, commissioners, Justin Zucker from Ruben Junius of Rose again. On behalf of the Polikers, the owners of 258 Cumberland who purchased the property entitled from the prior owners, before getting to the project, I'll turn it over quickly to Aaron briefly and then jump back into it. Hi, uh, my name is Aaron Poliker, uh, married, father with four kids. I bought uh, the property in 2019, if I'm not sure, or 20, uh, with the intent uh, to raise my kids in San Francisco in a beautiful uh, uh, neighborhood of uh, Dolores Park. And uh, I'm hoping this committee would help me accomplish this, uh, this, this target. It's been sitting for two years and uh, thank you. The approved alteration permit for this property came after a significant amount of outreach with the neighborhood, resulting from a DR request and a variance hearing. During that engagement, Agreement was reached with, for the project, which is the same as proposed today. To achieve agreement, a proposed roof deck and existing stairs were removed. Not appreciating that prior engagement, after the owners purchased the property, they sought to reincorporate those elements, which was not warmly received by the neighborhood. Having re-engaged, including long discussions with Mr. Sincata, whom you'll hear from shortly, I believe, the owners have fuller appreciation and have removed those elements. While there were opposition letters submitted before those elements were again removed, those comments received support the original approved design, which is what is before you here today. The 2019 alteration permit included demolition calculations. While the horizontal calculation exceeded the threshold, the vertical calculation was not really close to being exceeded. During construction, structural elements that were expected to be present were not. While this is very strange, I think I understand what happened. The home was originally constructed in 1910 on 22nd Street. 
and relocated to its present location in 1948. To relocate the home, it was dismantled into pieces, transported, and then the puzzles put back together. It seems that the puzzle was put back not appropriately. DBI conducted an inspection on April 19th, of last, uh, two years ago, and issued a corrective notice for the east wall framing. After discussions with the ZA, it was determined that the lack of framing was deemed a removal for 317. The lack of framing, coupled with the insertion of approved structural beam on the western wall resulted, uh, that's on sheets S2 and S7, resulted in the demo calculation tripling from 24% to 74%. Though the western wall framing was sistered, the insertion of the beam resulted in significant portions of the western wall being deemed removed for 317. This is sort of what Ms. Schutis has been getting at for a while. There is a disconnect. The 317 demo calcs were done at the right time and were fine. But there, the approved structural plans called for work that results in increasing the 317 numbers. The plans were followed in this case, but due to the insertion of a beam and a lack of framing, the vertical wall removals exceeded the 317 thresholds. This is not an instance where someone is trying to pull the fleece over the planning department's eyes to achieve something that otherwise couldn't be achieved. While the property is in an RH2 zoning district, as mentioned, this application was filed timely such that a single family home that is being pursued is permissible. We have modifications to the conditions of approval that we can share to that effect. Accordingly, we request this commission grant conditional use authorization so that this project may be completed and this eyesore and target can be removed. Just today, in fact, vandals broke in for a fifth time. We are thankful for the quick action and call from the neighbors alerting us so the premises could be secured. That concludes my presentation, but the project architect, sponsor, and I are available for any questions. Great, thank you. Uh, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Hello, my name is David Sincata. I'm here on behalf of Rick and Aileen Carell. Uh, and I do want to thank Mr. Zucker and his clients for working with us to bring this project back to what it was uh, and what was negotiated back in 2000, uh, that began back in 2017 before it was finally adopted. At that time, the condition to remove the roof deck from a, that was asked for by the Corrells as well as other neighbors was done, a condition for removal of the stairs as well, and those reappeared uh, un, unsuspectingly. In any case, uh, I want to appreciate that they've worked with us on this. I have suggested some language to Mr. Page who has also been very cooperative on this, um, that these some conditions under the new notice of special restrictions that would be customarily required for this, repeat these conditions that no roof deck be there, that secondly, that no stairs be re-added so that we won't have to go through this again. There was also a condition in the, uh, so in the variance decision that required working together on the location of the fence and the details of the fence, and I've asked for that too. So I'm gonna give you a copy of some of the examples 
Uh, I've reviewed these with Mr. Zucker, and he has no objection to these kinds of being added to the notice of special restrictions. I can give these to you. And that's all I have. Thank you very much. SFGov, can we go to the overhead, please? Do I have the overhead? Isn't that the overhead? No. There it is now. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Rick Carell. Uh, 39 years ago, my wife Aileen and I bought a small pre-quick Victorian shown here uh, at 262 Cumberland Street. Uh, the old Sanborn maps show that 262 Cumberland was built on a 50-foot-wide lot. It was subdivided into two 25-foot lots some around, somewhere around World War II. My former neighbor, Jess Vitrano, moved the house condemned for the 101 freeway to the 258 Cumberland lot in 1948. It was a tight fit. The two buildings straddle a common property line. Jess also built the pipe fence and retaining wall, which established the nonlinear western boundary in the rear yard. 258 Cumberland was sold upon Mr. Vitrano's death in 2016 to a real estate speculator who developed the plans for this massive 3,900-plus square foot building. We spent thousands of dollars and countless hours with lawyers and consultants to mitigate the impact of this monster home on our lives. We worked closely with the new owner, their architect, and the adjacent neighbors to revise the project to meet everyone's needs. These design changes included five-foot setbacks along both property lines, demolition of the western exterior stairs, elimination of the roof deck, agreement on fence height, and other concessions. In exchange for these revisions, the neighbors withdrew a discretionary review application and actively supported a variance as required for approval in 2019. These agreements were documented in the approved plans and in the variance decision letter that I'm trying to show here. <laughs> there we go. Or so we thought. In the latest CUA package, Exhibit F, we learned the original project sponsor was actively exploring ways to circumvent the elimination of the roof deck and other design changes we agreed to for support of the variance. We no longer trust these speculators to honor their agreements. Although a roof deck and western exterior stairs have been removed from the CUA plans, an active permit application 2021-0325-7265 exists to add these two features. We request the Planning Commission deny this permit and place a notice of special restriction on the property to prevent the roof deck and western exterior stairs from being added to the project in the future. We also seek to codify by NSR that the height of the western property line fencing does not exceed the height of our existing fence. We've been living next to this blighted construction site for three years and wish to see it completed, providing these planning restrictions are in place. Thank you. And Vincent, Vincent Page has been great. He's a great staff member, so we really appreciate his time. Thank you. Mr. Ionan, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Georgia Shudish, um, I want to thank Mr. Page 
and Ms. Berger for their work on this uh, enforcement case. Um, I sent you a thing uh, in the mail the other day, and it included uh, four different sets of demo calcs, one from 2017, one from the 2018 variants, and then two post-enforcements. Uh, the one from 2017, based on that that I sent you, uh, it looks like it should have been a demolition, and I don't understand how it passed review, but then in 2018 variants, there were different demo calcs. Today, uh, in your packet, I saw, Mr. and that's what we're getting now, this two-sided thing, Mr. Zucker's brief included the ones he showed up there from 2019, and um, they were part of the uh, addenda, it looked like. But, and this is a two-sided thing, uh, there's the permit tracking, and I annotated it with the sale, and the little arrow, which is an interesting little tidbit in how things used to work in DBI. Anyway, um, this is a speculative project, or it was, and maybe it still is. I don't know. All I know is that some, those 2017 calcs, if, if, they, if someone looked at them, they should have been looked at unless they got changed. The thing was a demo, seems to me, from the get-go. That's, that's my take on it. And given what was going on in those years, with development in Noe Valley and uh, Dolores Heights that falls into the pattern. So you're here to approve the CUA, which obviously you're gonna do. But looking back, could there have been a different outcome if the calcs had been adjusted? Could the house have just been fixed up? Apparently it was pretty livable. People lived in it for years. Could just had a cosmetic improvement. Could the entitlement not have been sold? If you look on the permit side, you can see the price increase. One and a half million in 2016, uh, the entitlement sold within a few months of the uh, permit being issued and approved for uh, 2.8. They asked more, but they didn't get it. Um, so that's really it. I think that if the calcs had been adjusted, maybe you wouldn't have this problem. I don't know. Maybe it would have been a paradigm shift. Maybe someone just would have fixed up the house. Maybe somebody would have put two units in there. Don't know. But something that needs to be thought of going forward is how are you going to deal with 317, whether you rescind it or not. And um, thank you. That's it. Okay, last call for public comment. You need to uh, come forward, raise your hand, or press star three. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners. Public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you. I'll give my comments first. Um, I think that you know, I, I appreciate staff bringing forward the proposal of having a second unit. Um, I'm persuaded by the discussion around the tantamount to demo versus kind of intentionally going above the scope of this project. I don't think adding a second unit forcibly really does much other than continue this project to be under construction for even more years, which I don't think is a benefit to the city, the neighbors, or the project sponsors. So I'm okay with the project as is, personally. Um, I'm also okay with these NSR restrictions. The only thing is number three, it's I don't like setting a height of something to something else. That height could change in the future. So if we're setting it to the neighbor's property fence, if they change their fence, that's automatically obligating this property owner to change their fence site. I don't think that should be in a permanent NSR on a house. So I'm okay with number one and number two, but number three doesn't seem to make sense to me. We have regulations regarding how high your fence can be anyways, so that's the maximum height that it can be. Those are my comments. Commissioner Koppel. Mm, this could be seconded or not, but I was going to make a motion to approve with the NS restrictions number one and two. I'll second that. And call on Commissioner Diamond. 
I have a question for the project sponsor. Is your client opposed to or supportive of the addition of the second unit? They're opposed to a second unit. It would not suit their family needs. They have four kids. Okay. So I'm having a problem with the staff's suggestion that we add a second unit. Um, it feels to me like it's an RH2 district. I get that. Um, but the decision to require people to meet a minimum density is a very big policy decision and one that we should be having in conjunction with the implementation of the housing element and that I'm very uncomfortable in imposing that requirement in a one-off basis um, in certain projects that come before us, maybe not all of them, um, and that I believe it's worthy of further study and that we should be you know, looking at that as a, a real policy question. Um, and if we want to go that way, it should be done through the adoption of an ordinance, um, not through an informal policy that is imposed based upon the um, composition of the commission at any particular point in time. I recognize we might have done it in the past on certain projects and that staff is probably responding to um, what we've done. But I feel like now that we... Um, have the housing element implementation in front of us, that the way to proceed on this subject, which is a really big and important subject, and it's not just should we add a second unit in RH2, it should we add, make sure there are three units in RH3, um, that that is worthy of a great deal of analysis um, as to the consequences of doing uh, minimum densities, um, and that my preference is to do that um, by virtue of an ordinance that's adopted where uh, we're creating certainty. Um, and it's an objective standard, which is what HCD is pushing us to do anyways in conjunction with its review, that we not do these one-off kinds of things. Um, so I would not be in support of adding the second unit under these circumstances in this particular case. I'm fine with the, I agree with Commissioner Tanner, I'm fine with the first two um, uh, additions to the NSR, but not the third, because that's a, a standard that could keep changing. So I, I'm fine with the first two. Uh, I actually have a question for that about with Mr. Sincata. Um, yes. Uh, if you set a limit, a height, I'd be a, it would be a lot easier than just saying it's relative to whatever the fence line is. Actually, uh, we have no objection to removing that. There is actually, in the variance decision, it requires the property owners of both properties to agree to the mutual design, so it'll probably be resolved one way or the other. Okay, anyway. so this was Belt and Suspenders then? Yes, okay. right. All right, then let's just <laughs> yeah. eliminate it. Okay, makes sense. Uh, Commissioner Koppel? Yeah, just through the chair, that uh, was my motion for the, the one yeah. unit. Okay, then I, I agree. That, so the motion that was was no second house but inclusion, then yes, I agree. Basically the plans that were, I think, part of the packet is my understanding. Yep. Okay. Commissioner Braun? Uh, I, I do agree with the motion. I do agree on, on including the, the two um, restrictions as well as not asking for the second unit in this instance. Um, generally speaking, I would like to push the density, but I agree with Commissioner Diamond's comments that this is kind of something that we need to hash out as more of a broader policy decision or something that we enact the planning code. I did think it was, I, I guess um, for Mr. Uh, Page, um, I, 
we spoke earlier, and I thought it was kind of interesting to hear sort of the, the backstory around the extent to which this project would be allowed today. You know, I, I'm supportive of the project as is because of the time that the application came in and that it was approved under the existing um, rules for the area at the time. But today, this project couldn't be approved right under the, under the special use district. Or would you mind just walking through how things have changed um, since then? Um, residence is more than 3,000 square feet in the large neighborhood special use district. Resident, large resident special use district district need to, ha to have a conditional use authorization where the commission is required to consider um, whether, in, as a basis of approving the conditional use, whether it would increase density. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so I, I think it's interesting that, you know, if this came before us today, maybe we would have a little bit more of a leg to stand on for asking for a second unit or something like that. But I, I don't see that being the case for this particular project. Thank you, Commissioner Braun. Ms. Wadi, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, just following up on Commissioner Diamond's comments, um, we are certainly as staff more than happy to take that direction. Um, at some level, it makes our direction to applicants um, much more straightforward. It gives us something um, to point to in the code. Um, we do really struggle with asking for a second unit when it's not mandated in the code. We don't have you know chapter and verse to cite. Um, and you, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, we've received. Um, Sort of direction, I think, through various actions over the years on the commission that I think we were interpreting as at some level of precedent setting direction. Um, but very much so, we're here to take your direction on these matters and understand the concept of it requiring a robust legislative conversation if we want to have minimum densities rather than, um, you know, if you happen to be a tantamount to demo or a demolition, we're going to require it even though that's not required through code. So um, we very much appreciate the, the discussion here and are happy to take that feedback um, and relay it on. There are many, many other projects in the queue um, that fit this bill. So we are more than happy to take that direction back to those projects as well. I do think it bears having a discussion here because I think, you know, there are different circumstances. So, you know, there are many very large houses that have come before us, and we had a pattern of folks adding a second unit to um, to obtain the CUA, and I think that was something that we did look on favorably and we would adjust sometimes the units. I would say for myself, this case is different in that it's a project that's coming back to us because of the tantamount to demo and like the, the de facto demolition versus coming fresh and kind of starting here. So I think to, to Commissioner Diamond's point, it's at least worth having a conversation of like what is our direction um, and not through the lens of this particular case, but through the discussion of what do we want to see as a commission and as a body and what do we want to use um, our CUA authority for versus, you know, working with others to have legislation. So I hope you don't take this particular case as like this is everyone's thoughts always um, from the commission, but perhaps to schedule that conversation sooner than later just to make sure for those projects in the queue, you are able to certainly suggest that they have a second unit. I'd love to see it, or a third if they're eligible, or a fourth, you know? Um, I, I don't think we would be, be sad to see that, um, but I think we end up talking about it case by case versus as a, a policy, and I think that is not, not fair to applicants. Absolutely, and we are planning on um, bringing back demolition controls as a big part of housing element implementation, so I think that's certainly the ripe um, moment in time for those discussions. Um, and we do always uh, encourage folks to add a unit, even if they're at their density through an ADU, we encourage, 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 and we will continue to do that for Great. sure. Thank you. Commissioner Moore? Uh, I, I will speak on behalf of a number of commissions uh, before this particular one. There was a larger element of cohesiveness with overlaps of commissioners who all had served for longer times, and there was enough strength and enough collective discretion 
to indeed push for a second unit when there was no protection of a large residential district, uh, as this does not apply here, and ultimately did result for RM housing in new uh, units not being larger than 2,000 square feet. Uh, uh, we also, in past commissions, and I'm speaking about commissions I have served in uh, in previous times, where the commission collectively was not going to rewar reward uh, malfeasance by basically allowing an oversized unit, which for all intents and purposes is not typical for this neighborhood, but is really what was referred to as mega-mentioning. And I believe that this is the case here as well. And for that very reason, including, I think, Mr. Sincada's uh, client, uh, Mr. Corral, in his letter to us, expressed the support for a second unit. Uh, if you read the letter on the last page, there is a comment. The city needs more housing, and we have no objections to the addition of a second unit for 258 Cumberland, as recommended by planning staff. I recommend, uh, I commend planning staff for uh, bringing it out. I regret that this commission is not using its discretion, particularly in light of all the pressures that are on us. And any one unit makes a big difference, and previous commissions realized that for the last 16 years that I've been sitting in this seat. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Did we have somebody else raise their hand for public comment again, Jonas? Uh, did they already speak? Oh, there is, yes. Indeed, there is. A lot of late comments today. Yeah. You need to press star six to unmute yourself. Caller, you need to press star six to unmute yourself. I apologize, but it sounds like you're talking about a project on Cumberland. Yes, we are. I, I, I dialed in at the very end, and I apologize. I'm not calling about that project. Sorry. No worries. Thank you. Okay, commissioners. Um, there is a motion that has been seconded to approve the project as a single-family dwelling as proposed. Excuse me. Did you have something? Yes. Having heard the commission's direction regarding it remain as a single-family home, I just wanted to bring to light some conditions of approval that are in the staff report that would apply if it were to be a two-unit building, but would not apply. And I just would like to call it direction to condition of approval number eight, which mandates dwelling unit density be two units. Overhead, please. What's the page number that's on? Page 18. So we have dwelling unit density being left at two units there, which if I'm understanding the direction going, just wanted to flag along with the bicycle parking requirement of two, which would be corresponding for two units. Thank you. Perhaps we could amend the motion to have this, the motion would be reflecting one unit at the property instead of two. Indeed. Actually, I think there's language throughout the motion that yeah. refers to two units and that's going to have to be uh, revised to yeah, delete certainly. So to the chair and the maker of the motion, the motion would be to approve the project as proposed as a single family dwelling with the suggested NSR conditions one and two, striking any uh, reference to two units throughout the motion. Correct. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? No. 
Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? No. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? No. Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners, that motion passes four to three with Commissioner Ruiz, Imperial, and Moore voting against. Commissioners, that will place us on item five from our consent calendar for case number 2022-005559 CUA for the property at 1700 Pine Street, a conditional use authorization. Good afternoon, commissioners, President Tanner, Elizabeth John Keir of department staff on behalf of Kimberly Durante. The item before you is for a conditional use authorization at 1700 Pine Street at the corner of Franklin. It is for a change of use at the subject site from the previous automotive repair use to fleet charging and a use size greater than 6,000 square feet. The property is occupied by a two-story over basement building with two garage openings on Franklin. The project involves the addition of electric charging infrastructure and would allow for the servicing and storage of up to 40 fleet charging vehicles. The exterior of the building is not proposed to be altered. As of the date of the motion, staff had not received any public comment regarding the project. The project was noticed um, and posted properly. The department believes that the project and use and use size would be desirable and compatible for the surrounding neighborhood and recommends approval with conditions. This concludes my presentation. The project sponsor is also here to answer questions and provide you with any additional information. Thank you. Project sponsor, you have a five minute presentation. President Tanner, members of the commission and planning staff. Uh, I'm Hannah Jacobus. I represent Avalterra Power. I am the vice president of real estate and development. We are the owners of 1700 Pine Street and we're responsible for the conditional use application before you today. Can you speak into the microphone a little bit more? Yeah, Thank let me you. Get a little closer. Um, so we're, we're here to ask you for support in granting the CU authorization to allow for the EV fleet charging project to proceed at 1700 Pine. As a part of the application requirements, we previously submitted plans and responses to relevant planning code criteria, as well as communicated how this project promotes the policies of the San Francisco General Plan. I believe it's important to note that within our submittal, we attempted to address concerns and issues raised during our previous commission hearings to consider the new EV charging legislation introduced by the board. Issues such as geographic equity and traffic activity, uh, vehicle miles traveled at the project site, as well as pedestrian safety were discussed within the context of the required findings. This project is our first in San Francisco uh, we hope to develop more projects similar to it. Uh, the Pine Street project is uh, similar in scale and operation to the project approved by the commission recently at 855 Gary. Both of these sites are part of the cruise network currently authorized and this will be the fourth. We believe that this location allows ride sharing to the western and northern neighborhoods of San Francisco. 
um, we agree with the recommendation of planning staff and ask you to grant the conditional use authorization for the project at 1700 Pine. Our tenant and our development team are available for questions uh, if you have them, but we're excited for the development. Okay, if there are no immediate questions at this time, and if that concludes project sponsor's presentation, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, if you wish to address the commission on this matter, you need to um, do so by coming forward if you're in the chambers or raising your hand via WebEx or pressing star three. Seeing no members in the chambers, let's go to our remote callers. I think I'm unmuted. Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. Alex Landsberg again. I just wanted to call in, let you know that uh, the project sponsor has um, has made a forthright commitment to ensure that the that the EV charging is actually installed by skilled and trained workers practicing uh, the highest levels of safety for this project. I think as one of the first uh, fleet charging EV uh, facilities, really in the neighborhood. I mean, surrounded by uh, by wood structures on both sides. And granted, I think it's a it's a concrete building, but nonetheless. Um, EV, uh, EV charging does present uh, some potential hazards and it's really important to make sure that the, uh, the people installing it uh, have the highest levels of training. Uh, my understanding is that the contractor that they uh, have selected uh, is certified with the Electrical Vehicle Infrastructure Training Program, which has been reflected in uh, both state law uh, as well as in the federal infrastructure package as really being the gold standard for electrical safety and quality and I, and, uh, I think we should celebrate uh, seeing this first project move forward in the city. Thank you. Again, you need to press star six to unmute yourself. This is Sue Hester. Uh, I want to raise the question of what is the level of hazard on the street for no driver electrical vehicle cabs? This is a cab that's not, it doesn't have a driver. And this is the, apparently the fourth, fourth time you've been asked to approve a project like this. We have had very uh, interesting stories. There was an interference admission in Cortland for the Muni. Everything came out to a halt and they had a hard time because there's no driver to alert them to pull up to their side. There was a large interference with Muni operations at Cortland Mission. It's a big intersection because the Muni is going around the corner. Also, there was a fire truck that was interfered with that made the paper as well. Mission, Mission Loco and the San Francisco Chronicle. I believe that planning needs to have a conversation with the fire department and with people from the Muni. Because if it's a hazard to Muni operations and fire trucks, because the thing that it was the people don't have a thing to read fire hose on the street. You can you can see the fire hose if you're a real driver, but if you're doing cruise operations, 
you don't have anyone to see a hose on the street. I understand you're interfering with fire, fire inter, inter, you're interrupting fire operations. So I would ask the planning department to take seriously the conflict between driverless cabs, no driver in there, that operate at night and the operations of Muni and the operations of the fire department. Thank you very much. Okay, last call for public comment. Again, you need to press star three to be added to the queue. Seeing no additional request to speak, commissioners, public comment. I see, I see one hand on mine, but oh, maybe it was I'm sorry, I thought that was the previous caller. I don't know okay. if it's a different number. No. I think, is it? Uh, this is an issue to our street acid as congestion. There is also no labor units being used. It is very disruptive to our community. Does that conclude your comment, sir? Uh, yes. Very good. Okay. Final last call for public comment. Seeing no additional requests to speak, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you, commissioners. Thank you. I will say I, I have similar questions to Ms. Hester in terms of about the actual vehicles themselves, and I don't know how soon I'll be hopping into a driver's vehicle, I'll just be honest. But from a land use perspective, they're in the city, they're permitted beyond the, the, the leverage of this body and even our uh, Board of Supervisors. It's the state, PUC, that regulates driverless vehicles. And so we have limited resources here, certainly conversations and things like that, but in terms of where they can charge, um, that to me, it speaks more about how we are look at congestion, where the locations of the charging places are, um, and again, the vehicles could park anywhere and drive into the city. So certainly take her comments very seriously, but not sure that this project, um, I'm not even sure actually what venue is the appropriate venue uh, for the city to have discussions with crews to try to figure out how to solve some of these conflicts. With that, I'll call on Commissioner Koppel and Commissioner Imperial. Yeah, I just wanted to put a little more context to, to what's going on. This is the Volterra's first uh, job in the city. Um, these new emerging technologies, um, we always need to make sure they, they start off well without, without a hitch. And uh, just some background regarding that EVITP program. Back in 2012, when vehicles started you know, being produced um, that were electric and there was the first generations in charging stations, there were a, a number of fires. And whether it was due to the vehicle um, not functioning properly. Sometimes the charger is not functioning properly. It, it became on like a national radar. And so the auto manufacturing industry in, in Detroit, uh, along with many numerous stakeholders and uh, contracting installer groups, really uh, took the lead and made sure that safety was of the utmost importance in installing these charging stations, in, especially when as the years go on, they increase in voltages and lessen in charging time. And um, just again, can't, can't stress enough that you know we're not talking about our, our household 110 volts in the in the wall. Um, the next levels up is what you see downtown in the office buildings for lighting, which is 277, and then the next level up from that is 480, which is extremely and highly highly dangerous. Like the the, the copper wiring is is so potentially dangerous when it shorts out at that high voltages. The, the 
copper, the solid copper literally bypasses the, the liquid state and immediately evaporizes and, and explodes and can be beyond, beyond dangerous. So uh, I'm thrilled to see Volterra here making commitments to make sure this is installed safely, correctly. Um, you know, we, we've been seeing items here recently where things aren't inspected and people are living in buildings. It's, it's sad to say. So th this is a really big commitment you're making and we're not taking it lightly. Um, because uh, safety is the utmost importance. We don't want anyone to get hurt. We don't want buildings to burn down because here in San Francisco, we have stricter fire, building, electric, seismic, and plumbing codes stricter than anywhere in the world because of how close our buildings are together. And if there's an accident or fire, that, that things can spread a lot quicker than they would normally. So um, just thanks for taking all of these uh, considerations seriously because they are a big deal to us and uh, full support. Thank you, Commissioner Imperial. Thank you, Commissioner Koppel, for having that explanation. Um, I'm also not aware about how are these EV chargers are actually monitored, and and I think that's also, um, I guess you know, since EV is still fairly new industry as well, there's still a lot of um, hesitation about this. And if we're talking about um, transportation, um, I do think that public transportation still is the number one option. Um, but I guess my question in terms of the outreach, because I think there are concerns from the community members around about how are these being installed, I guess um, it looks like in terms of notification, you know, mailing newspaper, but I wonder if the, you know, if the department makes effort itself to educate you know, when we when there are notifications like this, is there kind of like what we usually have, like a pre-app meeting or something like that? Thank you for the question, um, Commissioner Imperial. Um, this particular project didn't require a pre-application meeting, but we did. We often get general questions about this type of use, um, and I know that Kimberly did feel just general questions. Um, about EV charging, what it entails, um, and uh, any pending legislation as well. Because I, I mean, it looks like the planning commission will be the one educating the public for the EV. Um, so I just want to be kind of be proactive in this kind of general inquiries. Yeah. Um, in in terms of like you know the use, the safety, the, inst the installation of safety, you know, other accidents, etc. So that's it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Koppel? Uh, move to approve. Second. Okay, commissioners, there's a motion that has been seconded to approve this matter with conditions. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously seven to zero. Commissioners, that'll place us on your final item under your discretionary review calendar. Number 15, case number 2021-010975 DRP for the property at 1600 Lake Street. This is a discretionary review. Good afternoon, Commissioners. David Winslow, Staff Architect. Um, the item before you is a public initiated request for discretionary review of building permit application number 2021.0930.9605. To expand a ground level garage, add a garage door, and replace windows and a driveway gate to a two story over basement single family dwelling. The existing building is a category B, age eligible resource built in 1909. The DR requester, Jerry Drattler, 
40 17th Avenue, a neighbor across the street and to the east is concerned that the proposed project is an historic resource and an historic resource valuation should have been conducted um, before approval. The project needs to be re-noticed because the 311 notice failed to disclose the addition of 171 square foot a garage expansion, which also he contends requires a variance. To date, the department has received two letters in support of the project and no letters opposing it. Staff supports the project as it complies with the planning code, the residential design guidelines, historic review criteria, and has been properly reviewed and noticed. Despite the address, the location of the front entrance faces 17th Avenue, and the location of the rear lot of the, a rear yard of this property corresponds with the rear yards of adjacent properties facing 17th Avenue. Planning Code Section 130 also allows projects on corner lots to elect frontage for the purposes of determining yards and setbacks. In this case, the required rear, rear yard line is taken parallel to the front lot line on 17th Avenue. Therefore, the 171 square foot addition um, of the garage called out in the 311 is within the buildable area of the lot and not in need of a variance. The garage addition is partially below grade and set back behind an existing wall at the property line so as to be minimally visible from the street. A historic district <coughs> was initially proposed for the area but was never adopted. A historic resource evaluation is required for projects that would notably modify a building's facade or massing uh, in historic districts or in a, um, category A um, buildings. This project proposed, uh, this proposed project is limited to the modest changes of openings on the secondary and not highly visible elevations. A moderate expansion of an existing garage that is not easily visible from the street. Uh, preservation staff did review the project and determined that the proposed work meets the Secretary of the Interior standards uh, and is appropriate for the building and would not result in a significant change to the building's primary elevations or detract from the overall design of the building and therefore would not have a negative impact to a potential district. Therefore, staff deems there are no exceptional or extraordinary circumstances and recommends not taking discretionary review. Thank you. DR requester, you have a five-minute presentation. Yes, I have some materials, please. If you'd hand them out before I start, I'd appreciate it. Well, why don't you go ahead and start, and I'll I'm, start I'd your time. I'd like them to have the materials when I go through the slides. Thank you. <coughs> Could you turn the uh, computer on, please? Okay, thank you. This project illustrates what can happen when a permit consultant works with the planning department employees to deliberately misrepresent a $250,000 remodel of a historic building. The permit scope of work includes adding larger windows and extending the depth of 1600 Lake Street by about 2.5 feet without submitting a historic resource evaluation report. All the proposed work is visible from the street. I believe there are significant lessons that can be learned if the Planning Commission accepts DR. Pre-application meeting materials show the proposed change in depth from 35 feet to about 37 and a half feet. 
the open space with the building materials on the east side of the property, the site of the proposed garage expansion. The 311 materials did not disclose 171 square feet expansion and the proposed new rear garage wall. Will the proposed new rear wall maintain the five foot setback, that's the green arrow, from Stephanie Peake's house at 35 17th Avenue? 1600 Lake Street is a historic resource and a potential historic district, or block, excuse me. Many city documents acknowledge 1600 Lake Street as a historic resource and the most significant property in a potentially historic block. Confirming planning department documentation is in the DR application. This is a summary of the building permit, $250,000, larger kitchen and dining room windows, rear wall extension, expansion visible from the street. Ms. Hollies claim the project is modest with little financial impact, $50,000, is a material mischaracterization. The proposed $250,000 building permit is the first phase of a comprehensive remodel. To complete the entire scope of the proposed remodel, the property owner would have to submit a series of building permits. Serial permitting is prohibited. A new building permit should be submitted for the entire project scope of work. The new permit should determine if an HRE is required. The entire scope of work as described to neighbors in a pre-application meeting includes the addition of a deck, large main level exterior windows, and an exterior remodel that requires demo calculations. The entire project scope of work is on the next slide. This slide is an exterior depiction of the comprehensive remodel where you can see the new kitchen windows, the new dining room, the new dining room doors, and the deck, all of which is visible from the street. You also can see that the entrance to 17, excuse me, to 1600 Lake Street is not on 17th Avenue. That's the little white thing in the corner and the gate. So to say that the entrance is on 17th Avenue is wrong. And as the planning commission has pointed, planning department has pointed out, um, a variance would be required to be code compliant. Planning Department Discretionary Review Analysis mischaracterized the Lake Street project. Um, the windows and the expansion were not in the, the review analysis. Here's the CEQA scope of work, and you can see the Planning Department Discretionary re Review Analysis is a subset of the CEQA and the building permit scope of work. The Planning Department 311 notice failed to disclose the two and a half foot increase in depth and the 171 square foot expansion. The planning department was required to send a notice because of the proposed expansion. The 311 materials failed to include the existing and proposed square footage table from page A0.0 .0 of the permit plans. And you can see a subset of that page. Um, why was that not disclosed? The February 2022 planning department plan check letter called out the environmental analysis, or excuse me, evaluation for 1600 Lake Street could not be completed because the project sponsor failed to provide the requested information. How was the planning department able to conclude the proposed windows are compliant 
when you don't have all the materials. And I believe this is why the windows are missing from the planning department discretionary review analysis. Thank you for the opportunity to present. Project sponsor, you have a five minute presentation. Hi, I'm, I'm Susan McCormick-Taylor, uh, owner with my husband, Andy Taylor, of 1600 Lake Street. I was just a little taken aback because I've actually never seen those plans that Jerry, Jerry showed, the additional work that we're going to be doing. Just as background, I moved to San Francisco in the early 90s with my husband. We have three children. So I worked I'm going to down... interrupt you just for a second. Elifka, can we go to the overhead? Great. Okay, go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I work in San Francisco, actually work downtown at Morrison and Forster, where I have for 25 years. So it was actually really interesting for me to be here for the beginning um, of it. My husband was a park steward. We lived in the Presidio for 19 years, and we bought 1900 Lake, 1600 Lake, sorry, uh, eight, uh, 2019 as our family house. Again, three children, dog. Um, it hadn't been cared for in about 25 years, and we have spent the last three years spending a lot of time and money really, really restoring it to its original, its original state. Um, the front porch was falling off. We got a permit to replace that. Um, we've done a lot of work in the garden, and we've done a lot of other things. We're, we're perplexed about why Mr. Drattler is, is, is here, because he did show up at a pre-meeting um, and indicate his support, as did all of our neighbors. So I'm going to turn it over now to Deborah, who is our counselor representing us. Hi, Deborah Holly, planning consultant for the Taylor family. Uh, thanks for your time. I'm, I'm perplexed as well by the plants that Mr. Drattler just showed you. Those, um, as I hope you understand, are not the plans that have been submitted and um, approved uh, by planning. So I hope you can focus on the actual plans. Um, we, we don't understand why Mr. Drattler is opposed to our project. He attended the pre-application meeting last year, um, told us that the project's really nice, and have you considered landmarking the uh, palm trees? So uh, the project has not changed between the time that he received the pre-application meeting plans and the 311 notice plans. Um, so basically, the, the project consists of a, a small garage addition of 171 square feet and associated elements um, and new windows. So. In yellow, you can see the small garage expansion into the side yard, not the rear yard. And um, this will allow the family to park their Honda Civic alongside their tiny 1967 Mini Cooper, which is the only car that can currently fit into the garage. Uh, as shown as, uh, in this drawing, next slide, um, the garage and the new garage door are not visible from the public right away because the garage is partially below grade and behind the gate, which will also be replaced. While the garage will expand into a small area of the side yard, this aerial shows the vast amount of open space, the aerial, um, open space on site that will remain, which is outlined in red. While the footprint of the home could become much larger 
under the planning code, the family's only proposing a small addition. As shown in this next drawing, the project includes window replacements on the western elevation. You can see those in, in yellow. The project does not impact Mr. Drattler or any other neighbors. As shown on um, the, the aerial photo, Mr. Drattler's home is approximately 80 feet away and across the street from the project. Because the project is minimal and a considerable distance from the site, he is just not impacted. We have support from many neighbors, and Mr. Drattler is the only neighbor who has raised any objections. Mr. Drattler's DR request is incomplete, inaccurate, and does not meet the standards required to take DR. Mr. Drattler made no effort whatsoever to resolve his concerns with staff or our team. He refused to meet with us and did not accept Mr. Winslow's offer to meet. This hearing could have been avoided had he reached out. Not only does Mr. Drattler's DR application fail to identify any exceptional or extraordinary circumstances, his application is incomplete. He doesn't even bother to answer the three essential questions on page one of the application. Instead, he accuses planning department staff of improper noticing and improper planning and preservation Thank review. you, that's your time, but you do have two minute rebuttal. Thank Members you. of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. Uh, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three. Seeing no other members of the public in the chamber, we'll go to our remote callers. Again, you need to press star six to unmute yourself. Good afternoon, commissioners. Ozzy Rao with San Francisco Land Use Coalition. Um, I would like to bring up to your attention that the issue here is not about the views or height and the garden variety not in my backyard complaints. Um, this is about following the process and compliance with the planning code. As Mr. Grappler pointed out, it's highly unusual to propose enlarging windows on a historic resource without submitting the specifications of such windows and without the preservation team evaluating the appropriateness of these window replacements. You recall only a few years ago when one of our activist colleagues uh, was replacing five steps uh, in front of her house and the preservation team had to actually spend two to three months to review the replacement of these five steps. And, um, you know, of course, the house was in a historic district, but uh, it wasn't a main contributor to that historic district. In this case, this house is a type A historic resource, and it should have been uh, studied much uh, more vigorously, and any replacement of materials should have been considered more uh, vigorously. Also, I do support Mr. Drabler's point about the scope of work. This doesn't look like a modest remodel. This is definitely uh, much larger than that, and we are concerned that this could turn out to be a serial permit situation, which I know that this commission is not a fan of. 
So that's why um, this DR needs to be accepted, and we really urge you to pay attention to what should be followed, what should be the process, and everything you. should follow. Thank you. That is your time. Again, you need to press star six to unmute yourself. Hi, my name is Alan Grenitz. I live at 2018th Avenue, directly uh, on the same block as the subject property, and I have a full and unobstructed view of the entire house from the back of my house. And I'm calling to support the Taylor's application. I think that they have done uh, they have improved the house in appropriate and quality manner since they purchased the house in 2019. The description of the fact that it was becoming a dilapidated historical resource was accurate. And I think their project appears to be uh, appropriate and would encourage the Planning Commission to approve their request. Thank you. Hi, um, good afternoon, Commissioner. I'm a house owner who's uh, living across the street. I'm here today to speak in support of my neighbor who have uh, recently faced some difficulties. I've known them for years and they are some of the most honest, responsible and caring um, individual I've ever met. You know, with the increasing number of the car break-ins, um, it has become increasingly vital to take precautions to protect our properties. A garage will not only provide a secure place to park their vehicle, but also prevent them from being easy target for thieves who may be targeting car parked on the street. So our community has been affected by the raise in car break-ins over the past few years. And my neighbor's decision to add a garage to their property is a proactive step towards protecting their vehicle and property. Through their investment in their poverty, our neighbors are not only improving their own protection, but also contributing to the overall safety and security of our neighborhood. So moreover, the addition of the garage will also enhance the, um, the appeal of the neighborhood. As we all know, a well-maintained poverty contribute significantly to overall the look and the feel of the community. By investing in their poverty, my neighbor are not only improving their own quality of life, but also elevating the value of the poverty in the neighborhood. So I urge the commissioner to consider my neighbor's positive contribution to our community and recognize their effort to improve their poverty. They have also always conducted themselves with respect and integrity. So they deserve a fair and just resolution to this matter. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Catherine Petron. I'm an architectural historian and preservation planner in private practice. I have a brief comment uh, in support of the DR that has more to do with process than the proposed project. I'm concerned that in general, we're seeing diminishing levels of review with regard to historic resources. 
And though a historic district has not been adopted on Lake Street, in the past, the planning department has treated the area as if it was a potential historic district. A few years ago, I prepared an HRE for a property at 1650 Lake, one block south on the, at the corner of 18th and Lake. It was a similar project with two street-facing elevations, but of a lesser intervention than proposed here. In this case, a historic resource evaluation should have been required given the proposed modifications are visible from the pub public right-of-way and certainly given the significance of the historic resource. Uh, built in 1909, 1600 Lake is a contributor to a potential historic district and a historic resource evaluation should be required. Thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Jim Riley. I am in a, a 1601 directly across from this project. Um, there is a lot of sleazy, neighborhoods. This is not one of them. Um, the tailors have done everything top notch A1. Um, what is being proposed is less than modest. It's minuscule as far as adding on that little bit in the back to make it usable to car garage, which nobody will be able to be able to see with the new gate. And again, everything is done so well, it's so aesthetically pleasing. The new gate, I'm sure, will be done much better as well. As far as the windows on the west side, I guarantee you nobody walking down the street is even know the windows that they put um, case in point is the front porch, which for the last 20 plus years, every morning when I look at my front door, the front porch has been leaning and falling off. And it was replaced exactly like it was, except it wasn't falling off and it wasn't crooked. So if that is an indication of how things are going to be done, which I'm sure it is, then everything else they're going to do will be just as properly done. Okay, last call for public comment. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners. DR requester, you have a two-minute rebuttal. I have handouts I'd like you to give the okay, your commissioners time's before I... I'd like my full two minutes. You can begin so, now, sir. Your time is running. Okay. Um, the computer needs to be on. I filed this DR to ensure there was an HRE and there is a comprehensive building permit. There are no neighborhood letters in opposition to this project for the following reasons. Six days after I filed my DR application, Mr. Taylor sent an email to his neighbor, Stephanie Peak. I was copied on the email. In the first part of the email, Mr. Taylor falsely accused me of invading their privacy. At the end of the email, he explains why he and Mr. McCormack are applying for a permit to replace the existing fence between their house and Ms. Peake's house with a 10-foot fence. Mr. Taylor accused me of invading their privacy 
and um, falsely claims to have filed a police report. In the slide, Ms. Taylor justifies the taller fence by claiming Ms. Peake allowed an elderly man to spy on them and claims they did not want to be involved with the police. The police were never involved. It's not possible for me to invade their privacy. Project plans show the bedrooms are on the west side of the house and the garage windows are on the east side of the house where I took the pictures and don't look into any bedrooms. Mr. Taylor and Ms. McCormick did not file a police report, so they couldn't send the police to visit me. Ms. McCormick's claim in the email that she did not call 911 is inaccurate. The next slide is a transcript of the call where they were asked if they wanted to press charges and they said no, and they said that the call was about an ongoing dispute with neighbor Drattler. I would like to say one other thing. The quality of the work they're doing is really good. That's your time, sir. Thank you. Do you are, or excuse me, project sponsor, you have a two-minute rebuttal. I'm, I'm going to go quickly. Um, first, we didn't ask any of our neighbors to call in in favor because we thought this was, we just really didn't understand why this was happening, and I am incredibly touched that a bunch of them saw that it was happening and called in anyway. Um, it was just really lovely. Second, Mr. Drattler and there are numerous other people who have so, seen him has been on, have been on our neighbor's house taking pictures, including into our, our children's bedrooms. We did contact the police. There is a police report that is totally separate from this matter. Um, we don't know why Mr. Drattler has been doing this. We did try to reach out to him on three different occasions to try to meet with him in person, separate from the process, because we have good relations. We want to have good relations with our neighbors. And we don't know why he didn't meet, and then he filed the DR. So I just wanted to say that. I, there's so many things to respond to, but I guess, number one, we're not engaging in serial permitting. Number two, hopefully you understand that the plans that we submitted and that are on file are not the plans that Mr. Drattler handed you. I haven't seen what... He handed you, but um, that I, I just I haven't even been able to review that other than on the screen, and it's it's some other plan. Um, the The porch was literally separating from the building. We received uh, I got uh, received an emergency permit to replace the materials in kind and uh, received that from DBI. We haven't, we've done everything by the book, and uh, hopefully Mr. Winslow can, uh, can inform you further on the thorough preservation review that Michelle Taylor from the preservation team um, uh, completed. Thank you. Okay, commissioners, um, this project is now before you. Thank you. Um, I, I certainly uh, feel like the project was reviewed properly in accordance with city department policy, um, and the historic preservation review seemed to me to be appropriate, and the addition seems modest. I don't see any unusual or exceptional circumstances related to this project. Commissioner Koppel and then Commissioner, Commissioner Imperial. Uh, I was just going to make a motion to... Uh, Support staff's recommendation. Second. Second. Commissioner Moore. 
Uh, I would just like uh, to have Mr. Winslow explain one more time why no HRE was required and regarding the windows, I think it is very interesting to read the partial district preservation report. I found it very informative and I hope that you ultimately find closure to that subject matter. We just want to make sure that this particular building falls way within all of the guidelines that apply. If we could restate them, I think it would make it much more comfortable for all of us, particularly I think this commission fully supports the creation and justification of a historic uh, district with nobody stepping out of line. Sure. So uh, this is an age-eligible building, meaning that it has not been yet determined whether or not it's an historic resource on its own or within the confines of a district that had been um, put forward but not finalized as a uh, Lake Street historic district. That was put on hold um, due to the project, uh, the person who applied for it not following through. However, staff's review, preservation staff's review, treated it as if it would or could have been a resource in terms of there's applying the same standards, the Secretary of the Interior's standards for historic buildings, vis-a-vis -vis compatibility with the existing structure, windows fitting the you know one over one double hung windows in the existing openings on a non-primary um, facade, as well as the visibility of the garage expansion, which is not only partially below grade, but set back 15 to 20 feet from the street and separated by a six foot high fence, um, rendering it vis minimally visible, if visible at all. Um, this is the same standard that we would apply for an historic resource, whether you're putting on a third story addition to a two story historic resource, the criteria is still the same that you want to make that addition minimally visible and whatever all other alterations on the existing building compatible with that building. So the review was done by Michelle Taylor, a preservation staff in the uh, certification of the categorical exemption. And this, that's the review that took place as far as historic uh, review. It didn't require it in an HRE. Thank you. Did that answer your question, uh, Commissioner There's Moore? only one comment, and uh, I agree with staff saying that while the building is a corner lot, there is a certain ambiguity which it's about is its primary facade sure. or not. When you look at the interior plan, the sequence of the entry, while the porch itself is diagonally over the corner, clearly makes the uh, people move in western direction, which puts the, 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 the mass or the circulation element really the primary facade is on 17th Street. Uh, that seems very clear when you look at the interior of the building. Uh, well, I want to be very careful, particularly when uh, uh, preservation uh, architect uh, Petrin weighs in. Uh, I want to make sure that we are all within the rules that make this building sensitive in its uh, changes and is not impairing of what ultimately larger interest of the uh, entire neighborhood is. So that, that is what I needed to know. Mm -hmm. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, and I appreciate those comments as well. I don't see any other commissioner comments. Very good. If there's nothing further, there is a motion to not take to your and approve the project as proposed. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So move, commissioners. A motion passes unanimously 7 to 0. Okay, we are adjourned. Thank you, everyone.